This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Monday morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. And a new week. A new week. But, you know, different than last week. Better. Let's make it better. We could do that. And uh, got a lot to go through today. Joe Cannon will be on the show, our Washington insider. We call him Joe in the know. And uh, we got to pick his brain about uh, all things political. Uh, healthcare, wiretapping, a lot of uh, fun, exciting stuff. Uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions laid a few people off. 45 uh, attorneys. It's a big deal. Forty-six. More than a few. Forty-six. It happens in many. Forty-five agreed to it. Forty. This that last oh. one is when the problem was. Oh, you don't have to agree. Well, no. I mean, they they say we ask for your resignation, and it's like if you say yes, okay, nah. great. If not, they fire you. So yeah. either way, you're out the door. Man. And President Man. Obama did it. President Bush. Both. Reagan. Of them did everybody it. Yeah. did it eventually. Yeah. But maybe not like all in the first. Yeah, not months. the same day. Yeah. yeah, it's like with the uh, the ambassadors. Yeah, the Trump administration told ambassadors around the globe, "You're gone. When we take office, you're out." Usually, yeah. you wait till your 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 replacement shows up, so you <laughs> have a handoff. But whatever. It's you fun. know, I think President Obama took his firing so graciously. You know, they told him, "We're done. You need to leave," and he. He did it so well. Uh, you mean so when he was president? Yeah, and then he was let go. Well, and he, uh, he, you know, he was he had he had run as much as he could. You know, he was done. Like politically, he just can only run twice. Not right? necessarily. Well, president. Well, you, what, There's what, a member of the House of Representatives that thinks he's running a shadow government at the time. That's why he's still in Washington, D.C., because it makes no sense that he'd stay there because his daughter is still in high school. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. He is still in D.C. And, uh, you know, somebody's got to run the shadow. So government. he's running the shadow government. That's what he's doing. Speaking of shadow governments, I've taken on a new project on my phone. Uh-oh. I am now the mayor. No. I'm the mayor of Town Town. Don't do Foursquare. Uh, I'm doing Sim City. Oh, okay, that's better. And I'm building a city. Good. I wanted to feel what it feels like to be a politician, a government leader, and I'm doing it. Do they let you put in like the water pipes, and uh-huh. electricity, and all that? I had Good. a sewage problem last night. Ooh, was... I kind of overbuilt my city. Those are scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People tend to get ahead of yeah. themselves on that game. And then I ran out of money, and a lot of people, the sewage was backing up. I have a city mm. now. I've built it, not to brag, but I've built it to about 10,000 citizens. Right. And it's growing like crazy. The first version of that game, you could uh, put the game on pause, build your, you put in this, this code. F-U-N-D-S, funds, oh, you, you remember right? it. Oh, yeah. my heavens. I played it in high school. And you just – you build up your entire city. You put in all your uh, – what, all your commercial, yeah. your industrial. You put all that in and then you save it and then you unpause the game. And because you use the cheat code, a natural disaster hits, monster shows up, whatever, destroys the whole city. Hold on. Can monsters show up? Yeah. In that game it did. Oh, boy. Godzilla would come through and you know stomp the city. And then you would go reload the save version yeah. and you would have all your money and it would just continue on. Mm. Wow. So you'd avoid the natural disaster. But that cheat probably doesn't work anymore. Yeah, I don't, so I'm going to try that. Hey, if you're, if you're low on funds and you want to save some money, I could help you with your electrical work. Yeah, um, appreciate it. I just, 
I just can't. Aff- I don't think I could afford the death benefits. <laughs> the game's fun though because your citizens actually complain, and you yeah. have to answer the mine, complaints. Mine complain, and they're like, "Hey, our sewage is backing up." But to buy a sewage plant was like ten grand, and yeah. I only had two thousand. So did you raise taxes? Can you do that? Yeah. <laughs> It's the game. No, you know what I did do? He's going to become a dictator. Just watch yeah, it. My fun. problem was I needed – I had too many people yeah. for my facilities. So did you purge the population? I purged I, – I got rid of some trailer parks quite literally. Wow. You just – done. Well, I was just like there's a bunch of in – that were in the building process. You didn't You didn't, You didn't. didn't want uh, donate to my campaign? You're out of here. No, no. No. I just said, well, there's like three or four you know, trailer groups that I could just get rid of. Okay. And I did. A, a trailer park? And amazingly, it was like a tornado. And I, I got rid of them, and amazingly, See? I got lots of green smiley faces, and I, boom. I, I knew the government could create weather. So I'm learning a lot about government. They have a, they have a machine that does yeah. that. Yeah, so exactly. you, you play video games is what you're saying. No, this isn't a video game. How is this not a video game? This is game? Sim City. It's like Sin City without the sin. It is a city planning simulation. Yeah. Is there video involved? No. No videos involved. No video involved. No. And it's not a game. There's some gamification, but not necessarily game. Is that a George W. Bush term? Absolutely. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Good times. Uh, So I'll keep you all updated on that. I mean, that's huge information. By the way, it's also napping day. Mm. So, you know, today's the day. Get it in there. Mine's planned for about 11. Uh, it's supposed to be warmer today in uh, Utah, so I'm probably going to go on my walk. Yeah, if it's warmer outside, they turn the air conditioning on full blast, and so you'll turn back into that meat locker. That's that right. You That's why have. I always wear coats in this building. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I'll get my nap in about 11, my walk in, and then pretty much if everyone would leave me alone, that'd be great from yeah. maybe 11 on. I'll send out a memo. <laughs> send out a memo. So it's darker outside still, yeah. so maybe that's why it was so difficult to get up this morning. Yeah. I was up late running my city. I got two jobs now. On Three your phone? Yeah. Play, playing your video game, right? Yeah, not yeah. On, on my phone, on my mini iPad. All right. My 7 Plus. You bought the full version? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, hold on. No, well, no, it was free. Are there in-game purchases purchases yeah well i haven't gonna, done that you're gonna run into some time restraints there then yeah I'm gonna, I'm go, i want to do the slow play okay well, do you get paid for all these gadget plugs that you do what got no 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 he's just talking about his life just trying to talk about my life things happen Ah, so much to talk about. Let's get to the headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas said Sunday on ABC that House Republicans, their bill to repeal the Affordable Care Act will have problems in the Senate and could put the Republican majority in the House at risk. I would say to my friends in the House of Representatives with whom I serve, do not walk the plank and vote for a bill that cannot pass the Senate and then have to face the consequences of that vote. I'm afraid that if they vote for this bill, uh, they're going to put the House majority at risk next year. And I don't want to see the House majority put at risk on a bill that is not going to pass the Senate. Senator Cotton said the bill probably can be fixed, but he said it will take a lot of carpentry on that framework. No boy. A lot of metaphors. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office is expected to issue a report today concluding that the House Republican plan to replace Obamacare will leave fewer Americans with health insurance. Yeah. So they were out in force yesterday trying to 
soften that landing of the report today. Today, President Trump will hold his first cabinet meeting. There's two members of the cabinet will not be there as they have not been approved yet uh, through the Senate, the approval process. He will hold a health care listening meeting with, quote, victims of Obamacare. So that should be productive. And the German Chancellor Angela Merkel will make her first visit to the Trump White House on Tuesday. Oh, boy. Some things to look forward to there. Despite repeatedly antagonizing China during his presidential campaign, President Trump now plans to host Chinese President Xi Jinping in his, at uh, Mar-a-Lago later uh, this month, I think, is what it said. No, April 6th, so first of next month. The meeting will reportedly cover economic and security issues. Trump has not, uh, according to reports, uh, play plan to play any golf with the president of China. I'm not sure if that's his game, uh-huh. but they're not going to play golf at Mar-a-Lago. They're going to just simply work, discuss some of their differences. Maybe they can agree on how to stop North Korea because they're both kind of, you know, concerned. Yeah. Yeah. As China is also capable of being hit by these rockets that are now flying into the ocean. The visit could help ease fears uh, and those of the U.S. and elsewhere who have become anxious that uh, Trump isn't committed to a positive relationship between the two global powers. So we'll see where that goes. Hmm. Top lawmakers on the House Intelligence Committee have asked the Justice Department to turn over evidence showing Trump Tower was wiretapped during the 2016 election, an an allegation President Trump leveled at former President Obama without giving proof. The committee wants all the evidence today. Really? I think they think it's going to be a quick process of getting the evidence. See what happens. That's it. And finally, Villanova, the defending national champion, number one seed overall in the 2017 NCAA men's tournament. The other number one seeds are Kansas in the Midwest, Gonzaga in the West, North Carolina in the South. Villanova, uh, the top spot for the third time in school history, will play Thursday in Buffalo against the winner of the Mount St. Mary and New Orleans game. Because... Mm. We need that. Yeah. The Final Four will be held April 1st and the 3rd in Phoenix. What a party. Make your plans. Bracketology, big news yesterday. Everybody's just all excited. That show used to be the the reveal that CBS does. It used to be two hours. Yeah, how, yeah it seems People like started an getting, They started getting annoyed because it's like you're just sort of trickling out these brackets when you, you have them the entire time. It's not like you're just getting this information. Yeah. So they decided to try to condense it so they get it out in a half hour so they don't tick everybody off as they're <laughs> trying to look at their brackets. Well, so. they they still seem to be ticking people off. Well, whatever you do, you're going to make people mad. But get all the information out, then talk about it. Well, then Don't, squeeze it for all you can. Well, of course. But they give like two or three, and then they go, oh, let's go down to Florida where Jim Nance is sitting, and we'll talk about what he thinks about Kentucky's chances. And you're like, they're like the two seed. Yeah. What, what about the rest Who of the brackets? You got 16 yeah. teams. Who cares what go. Jim Nance thinks? Yeah. Isn't that funny? How they just, it's all about. Getting the the most bang for the buck. Did, I guess they paid the for the rights mm-hmm. to show the brackets first. And if you uh, – someone like myself will go split screen. You can watch CBS on one channel, ESPN on the other, and CBS announces. And then about 30 seconds later, ESPN is able to throw the brackets up. They have to wait till oh, CBS wow. announces. That must tick them off. No, I mean they've paid for it, but ESPN's like, who cares? Oh, they're just waiting. And what if they wait three days? You wait till CBS announces. Like, oh, that would yeah. just get me mad. Price of access, just yeah. like in SimCity. No, you're, exactly. You're not going to be able to progress faster in your game because you're not willing to pay for access. A guy can only make so many nails because I have to make nails with raw products okay. to build things. That's getting into like Settlers of Catan, which is another game that's really annoying. Yeah. You guys have kids that you play with, right? Huh? I was just. I thought I remember you saying something about you having 
six kids. Yeah, I have six kids. Okay. I weird thing. I didn't. I didn't notice them yesterday. Hmm. It's like they were gone. Sounds like a great day. Sounds like maybe you're going to incorporate them into your game somehow, and you'll just have virtual reality, or you'll have computer generated kids instead. Then Probably. you could just play with them. I did build my mayor's house. It's huge. Is it? It's a nice house. Oh, good. Not to brag. Trappings of the office. It's a nice house. <laughs> and um, the neat thing is you can put it anywhere you want. So I put it away from all of the people. You had any corruption scandals yet? Not yet. When I played, there Not was yet. always two or three. I don't know where they came from. Well, it from. might just be how you play. Might be. <laughs> um, I did notice something really interesting. A storm grate huh. costs like 450 bucks. Wow. I mean, that's expensive. I mean, you can pretty much build... It's like the whole Pentagon screwdriver thing yeah, from decades yeah. ago. You could put in a coal plant yeah. for just like two grand, right. but a storm grate is like 480 bucks. So I put together a campaign that was um, Make America's Storm Grates Great Again. Is it a supply and demand issue? Yeah. No. I don't see much of that, but I have like been doing a lot grates? of international trade. Do you have like other cities that you can trade with? Uh-huh. What about like, I don't know, military action? Can you attack another no, city? No, I have that? yet okay. to see any military involved. Yeah. I don't even have my police out yet. You have an airport? <laughs> no. No? Because that really helps with your economy to no, get it going. No, exactly. I don't have a port port either. I I don't have it. The port's going to cost me twenty grand. Eh. And right now I'm running – I have about a surplus of $2,500. Any sort of bond issues you can float? No, I was looking Everyone's for a bond floating yesterday. Bonds nowadays. I needed a bond to do my sewage. Eh. Sounds like you need to start a war. No, yeah. again, That'll no, get the economy going. There's no going. military. Go. There you go. Yeah. That's how the game works. But what I, I am learning a lot about politics. And even yesterday we spent some time putting together videos for my kids, um, uh, class office videos. One's running for student body officer. One's running for a class office. Mm. So we made videos. Really? And I'm learning a lot. I, I've been watching a lot of video of Kellyanne Conway on how to spin certain things. So I'm teaching my kids how to spin for when they like have to do like the meet the candidate you know, component of the – Election. I sent you that video that sort of broke down how she approaches an interview right? yeah, and how yeah. she approaches answers. Yeah. I'm going to use that. It's good stuff. She's good. And then uh, my one son um, thought he'd like just throw out a little wiretapping problem, mm. you know, because that gets people talking. Yeah. You know, I, I'd i be happy to give him some tips. I ran a successful campaign in high school. Hmm. Uh, one of my posters involved a, a drawing of Homer Simpson holding up a mirror which is from a calendar I owned, and I, you know, drew it myself. And it said, how could you look at yourself in the mirror knowing you didn't vote for Jeff Simpson? Hmm. Well, you know what? I'll pass it along. Can your kids go after their opponents? Um, can you yeah. accuse an opponent of wiretapping? Because uh-huh. you don't have to have proof anymore, so you can just yeah. say it. Right? I think you can do anything you want. I mean, you can demand an investigation. Yeah. You can do anything you want. It just can't cost more than $100. Oh, is, the, is the communist scare, is that still a thing? No. Can he say he's a communist? No, not anymore. Mm. It's more like he's with ISIS. So we're working up some anti-other uh, candidate posters about how they're with ISIS. Okay. You know what? Have him demand that this other kid show the balance on his uh, lunch program. Make sure he's paid oh, yeah. in full. Oh, yeah. If he's not paid in full, he's, he's a yeah. goner. I don't think he's going to show any of his documents. 
no. about lunches. You don't have to. Uh-uh. It's tradition, but uh-huh. you don't need to. And because it's public school, they don't even have to show their um, passports, their oh, visa. Yeah. They don't have to verify that they're even in the country. No. Is he an American citizen? I'm not going to comment on that. Yeah. Okay. It's immaterial. Yeah. It just kind of muddies the water. But let me just say this. As we shot the video, it was – it did involve a parachute. Huh. You know those parachutes that the kids used to play with at school? Right. Yeah, a big colorful parachute. Okay. Well, it was it was pretty fun. I was just pulling out all the stops. I was on the football field with I don't know ten, twelve. I can't remember the number. Um, young people. I would just, just have trying him, to get them to work the camera. Keep an eye on on this other kid's Facebook account. <clears throat> use whatever idea. use whatever you've got. On. Oh yeah, no, we've got we we did hire a special investigator for twenty bucks. He's a, he's a kid from the tenth grade. So he's in the know. Ah, lots of fun, folks. Hey, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Joe Cannon, Joe in the know, and uh, see if we can understand what's going on back in D.C. Lots to talk about. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, that is a lot. I'm sorry, I can't stop laughing. It's just a lot of Joes there. Um, Joe Cannon joins us. Joe's a friend of the show. Joe, we made you some new music, my friend. Did you hear that? Yikes, that's that's way worse than Bob Dylan. <laughs> that's a lot of Joes. Um, oh, you, you could go back to Surfer Joe. I mean, that's I know we might need to how, how I grew up. We, we might need to fix that. <laughs> I love it. Though. It's uh, it just makes me laugh so darn hard. Hey Joe, uh, Joe, you're a you're a wash. We call you our Washington insider, but just because you've 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 touched them all you've 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 run for office you've run the republican party in a state before you were uh with the reagan administration um you've run a newspaper as well what what do you think um it's only what 55 days or so of the trump presidency but now they're pushing the health care bill through and it seems like they're pushing it through as fast as they can what do you see about the new health care plan coming from the republicans well, you know, you know, I'm not an expert at all on health care. I think, though, that there's some fascinating aspects of this just politically. I, I, I you know, I've, I've looked at different pieces of it, but I honestly I don't I'm not the right person to talk with about uh, about the the guts the, of the, yeah, bill, the intricacies, what it's going to do. But it's a very interesting political picture because you've got, you know, for eight years, you had the Republicans campaigning against it. Uh, and obviously, uh, President Trump campaigned against it. Big right. time. So the whole idea of repeal and replace entered the political lexicon. So now you're you're kind of stuck. And, and you know there are famous cartoons already that oh, what happens? The the dog caught the truck, or <laughs> better, the dog caught the ambulance. Right. Exactly. Uh, going, going to the hospital, and it's like 
oh, what do we do now? You know, you're thinking at one level, wait, they've had eight years to think about this. And the only thing they ever did agree on as Republicans anyway was passing a completely repeal bill uh, without a replace. So the the one starting point is that everyone could agree on repeal. But then once you, you know, sort of lift that tent flap up a little bit, you see all kinds of things in there, you know, little, well, not, not little things, big things. So 30 states agreed to, you know, um, to uh, have Medicaid expansion, Medicare expansion, and 20 states or so. It's maybe it's 31, 19, I don't know, it's just something like that. But but all, but a lot of Republicans are in those 30 states, and they're saying, well, wait, if you repeal that, if you change that, that's going to have a big effect on our on our state budget. Ugh. And so you've, you've got this whole complex set of things uh, to 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 try to address, and it's going to be really hard. Now, I would say one thing that uh, you've got, you know, Mr. Art of the Deal, I think, thinking, I'll just take whatever I can get right now, and then we'll, we'll go to the next step. You've got Paul Ryan, who's a much longer-term thinker, very careful and a very smart guy. I don't really know what, you know, what is animating him, but he's thought about this a lot, and he's thinking, well, we can, we can repeal and then do a little bit of replacement. Then you've got people saying, well, wait a second, there's this whole big procedural problem. Certain things you can do through so-called budget reconciliation, which only need, you know, 51 votes. But other things, some of the more substantive things, you can't do unless you're going through the regular process. And so you've got, like, a Senator Tom Cotton, who's a very smart guy, yeah, a very smart guy, saying, well, wait, wait, wait a second here. It's uh, let's. He's probably right, by the way. He said, "Let's uh, let's not be too hasty here. Let's let's do it and get it right." Then you've got Ted Cruz coming in and say, "Wait, I have got another idea. <laughs> We've been thinking that um, the re- the replace part is sort of bifurcated between what you could do in reconciliation, i.e., fifty-one votes, or B, what you can do where you're going to need sixty votes." He's going. I just read. The reread, you know, he's a pretty smart guy. So I just reread the Budget Act of 1974, and it has language in there that says, quote, let the presiding officer of the body determine what's permissible in reconciliation or not. Of course, that presiding officer is Vice President Pence. So I think that's entering the mix this week. Oh, wow. Yeah. So so you've got, uh, I mean, it's. It's very complicated, but it's a fascinating political issue. I think we're going to end up with sort of Trump-Pence, which is, you know, we're going to get done what we can get done. Some people are unhappy about it because it doesn't touch all of the uh, conservative uh, sensitivities about replacing. Uh, But you've got what you've you've got. You've got you've got uh, you've got the repeal and you've got this partial replacement and it just sitting back, not again, not being adept in all the subtleties of healthcare. I think you're going to get something like Trump Ryan going uh, at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, don't you think that? I mean, is it just is this manifesting and showing us all that it's a lot easier to complain than it is to govern? I mean, to have to make this work. 
is a is a crazy feat, especially because there's so many different political wills. There's so, I mean, senators. Uh, there's a lot of people who might have jobs on the line here if they're not careful. Yeah, on both on both aspects of this. I mean, this touches healthcare touches every single American to one degree or another, and uh, it's also a vastly expensive part of our economy. So you don't want to fool around with it in such a way that that causes uh, damage to to lots of different people, and that that it, it does look like the uh, the the weight the um, uh, the velocity. I'm, I'm missing the word right, but uh, uh, of Obamacare is pretty hard to undo, as I think President Obama figured it would be, which is why. He did it early, early, early on. Yeah, first major thing. He got a lot. He got a lot of criticism from his own party for spending so much political capital on it. But he got it done, and I believe understanding with a complete understanding, it's going to be really, really hard to undo once it got rolling. And guess what? That's turned out to be true. Well, and and that comment that President Trump made that man, who knew this healthcare thing was this complicated? Well, some people knew. You yeah. Know. Uh, Representative Price, you know, Dr. Price is, you know, the new Secretary of Health Education or Health and Human Services. He knew uh, and he put a bill out. And by, by the way, the, the Ryan bill apparently looks a lot like the the Price bill. Um, so I think all along, people who were pretty smart knew it was going to be way more complicated than a simple repeal and replace. Well, and I guess the other thing that we we hear now is, in in a weird way, it also apparently has to be done. Obamacare was struggling enough, it sounds like, that it, it was going to start falling apart. Some of the insurers were backing out. It was it was going to need some fixing anyway. Um, but I guess they're also stuck on the words repeal and replace, and they all made promises on repeal and replace that it's not like – Anyone wants to just fit together the old Ob- Obamacare, but isn't that really, in essence, what they're doing? Isn't it virtually the same thing? No, Senator Paul has it has it right. I mean, in a lot of ways, you could argue that at least big chunks of this are Obamacare light. Yeah. Uh, that is, there, there were there were clear problems with Obamacare. I mean, I, I don't think people dispute that there were big problems with it. The question is, how do you fix all of those problems at one time? And the answer probably is you can't. Yeah. So I think what Trump probably isn't deeply concerned about the subtleties and little pieces. He's just thinking, okay, you know what? When you're bargaining, you get what you can get, and then you live another day. Yeah, come back and fight again. I think that's the the combination of that, of uh, President Trump's attitude toward it, and Paul Ryan's much more surgical approach. I think that's what you're going to get. Boy, you know, uh, it's it is pretty amazing that within the first 50 days he's taking on so many immense issues. I mean, when you look at that, he is living up to his promises, even if people you know are surprised by how he's doing certain things. How do you how do you see that he is doing, and with the economy doing better, and He's had some good jobs reports uh, the, the last month or so. What do you what do you see just as far as what grade do you give him so far? Wow, that's so such a hard question. For one thing, I would just start by saying uh, 
I don't know if you saw the movie 55 Days at Peking about a, no. a, a, a big long siege. Charlton Heston is in the movie. Anyway, it's it's a long movie, and it's a, you know it's anyway. Let's not talk about the 55 Days of Peking. It this seems like it's been a really <laughs> long time. Yeah, it's January 20th. It seems. Much longer than fifty odd days. It's that's amazing, and you have to ask yourself: uh, Is he, you know, is he crazy like a fox? Ooh, Joe, uh, I think we, you... I think we lost you for a second there. Yeah, is he crazy? Is is he because he he throws out, for example, that massive uh, Trump uh, wiretapping comment? Um, about Obama wiretapping him. I mean, is that crazy, or is there, or is there uh, you know, a little Trump genius behind it? Yeah, right. Is it, is it crazy like a fox, or is there some genius? Well, and I think it's probably a combination of both, really. Uh, you've got, um, you know, let's start, with the, let's start with the tweet. Keeping in mind when that happened, it was after his, uh, you know, what some people thought was a great... Uh, presidential type talk but then there was a lot of criticism and there was the whole russia investigation and by him throwing that out and so blatantly it completely changed the conversation so it probably at one level accomplished what he what he wanted but when we're looking at the tweet set of things you know sometimes that that looks crazy and then has a has for him anyway a very positive result but I think if you look more deeply, I think well, one of the maybe interesting things that's happening is that um, – can you hear me okay? Yeah, now, yeah, we way? can. Okay. Yep. So one of the things that, that is happening is he is not your traditional political president. I mean, to say that is to say the obvious, but it's still – at an, uh, by not being that person and by many of the press, particularly the big-time press, uh, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and even the Wall Street Journal, who are looking at, well, we this is how normal political presidents deal with things, and he doesn't do it that way. It's, it, it feels to them, and to a lot of people, a little bit more chaotic. But when you look at sort of the spinal column of what he's doing, some of it is very, very, very interesting. Uh, you look at what he's done in the whole area of regulation. He's got a series of executive orders and a series of guidance documents to the agencies. And I spoke with a, a, a regulatory policy person at a pretty big agency last week, and they at that at that agency are carefully working through, examining all the regulations. They have to have a report due maybe this week or next week. I can't remember which, uh, where they are, have to lay out what they're going to do in response to the uh, getting rid of two rules for every one oh, rule wow, yeah. you invent. So, you know, just to multiply that through every agency and department, that is a very deep kind of a, kind of a thing that's going on. Then you look at his budget proposal, and it's, it's uh, I mean, literally, it's hard to think of it a, a different way. It's the Washington Post had a piece uh, on it, which basically says it would, the quote, quote, President Trump's budget proposal this week would shake the federal government to its core if enacted, mm. calling back numerous programs and expediting an historic 
contraction of the federal workforce. Well, when you look at that, coupled with his his direct uh, attack and assault on, on regulations, you're looking at something that looks pretty systematic, even though at the same time it also looks dramatically different from what any pre, pre, previous president has actually done, including Ronald Reagan. I mean, Ronald Reagan didn't get close to doing this kind of thing. So when you put the tax cuts, regulatory reform, budget reform proposals, you're looking at something that, while very alien to most Washington watchers, has a pretty systematic, systemic feel to it. Um, so I don't know. Some parts of it do, do appear chaos. Some parts of it are probably, you know, uh, kind of beginner problems that every administration has startup issues. But at, at a deeper level, there's some pretty systemic things going on. Then you look at this is something no one would really notice or very few people would notice. But when you look at his staffing within the White House, you look at some of the policy people that are already in place, you know, on the domestic policy council, the economic councils, there's some pretty smart people there. You look at his White House counsel's office, that's, you know, the people in that office are all really astonishingly good lawyers. They've clerked at the Supreme Court. They've been partners at big law firms. Hmm. Uh, it, itself, it's a little jewel of an office looking just at, just at the White House counsel's office. So, yeah, you, you see what you what you see is this tweeting that sometimes apparently erratic uh, president into a bunch of observers who all have certain expectations. I'm not getting into the liberal bias or not. I mean, right, right. You know, but, my mom used to always say, if you if if people like you, you can't do anything wrong, and if they don't like you, you can't do anything right. So true. And a lot of people in the big press don't like Donald Trump. So. That coupled with the fact that he really isn't a traditional political type president, um, what, what you're seeing on the surface may be different from what's actually going on uh, in, in the reality as, as, uh, as yeah. this government moves forward. No, in fact, that's what I, you can almost see. Uh, he creates enough chaos, but then get, is getting all of this other stuff done. But we don't hear that. We don't hear how well staffed and, and how how really smart a lot of his his players and team are. I think a lot of times we just think it's just chaos because nobody has a clue what they're doing, but maybe they do. Uh, Stick with us. We'll come back more with Joe Cannon. Joe in the know, we call him. You can find out more about what Joe Joe is doing for uh, to lower fuel costs in the United States by going to fuelfreedom.org. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's Monday, which means we're going to talk politics after uh, usually a long weekend of a bunch of pundits talking. Uh, Joining us is, of course, Joe Cannon. Joe in the know, we call him. He's the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation, which you can find out more about at fuelfreedom.org, trying to lower the costs uh, of fuel in the United States. Joe, we appreciate you being here. Thanks uh, for your insight so far. Talk to us. Talk to us about uh, how 
the media and, and what you see happening in the media. There's a there's a really weird. Uh, I don't know if it's a if it's a story to worry about, but uh, Rex Tillerson is going to Asia. Decided not to take any press with him, which see, which I guess is is not the norm. Normally, a, a, a contingent of press would go and report on what's happening in Asia. He's not taking any with him. Is this is this Trump just being you know punitive to the media, or is this Rex not wanting to have to be in the media? The answer to many of your questions, I don't actually know the answer to that. It is strange on the, you know, to not have reporters along. And in and, and my view, uh, you know, wrong. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't want to be too critical here, but there's no, to me, what's the reason for not having right. reporters along? I mean, the, the uh, I, can, I can disagree, and many, many people do disagree with the political orientation of many, many, many reporters. But having said that, uh, many people can filter out or do filter out whatever their the perceived biases and just get the news. I mean, I don't know. I'm making this up because I don't know who's meeting, but just say he's meeting the new prime minister of India. It's a very interesting, fascinating guy doing a lot of big things in India. Well, regardless of the of the uh, uh, political perspective of a reporter, just reporting on. Uh, you know, Tillerson meeting Prime Minister Modi would be very, very interesting. Right. And and uh, and also there's that that sort of check, like, well, we don't want to make we want to make sure we don't do anything stupid slash wrong slash embarrassing because there will be right in the light of day with reporters. So I I I do come with a pretty strong bias to saying, look, let reporters uh, go. Let, let him let him let him go on these trips, interview people, give us some background. I mean, what are we going to know? We're going to know some state dispatches, State Department dispatches, uh, which will also have their own uh, inherent bias uh, as to what happened. So I don't know. I, I, I guess on the subject of, of the press, there, there's lots you could talk about on media bias, of which there there's plenty of evidence. On, right. But still. The idea of having letting the people know and letting the people have a window in on what the the uh, government is doing is a pretty the, the founder thought it was important enough to put it in the First Amendment, and they hated the press back then just as much as people <laughs> do today. So, so uh, it's an important important uh, uh, part of the you know responsibility of the government to let people see what's going on in it. They they say Rex Tillerson didn't do a lot of media as as the Exxon CEO either but you know whether no matter what the reason you're now working for the people so get the people the information what would you say about um attorney general jeff sessions resi- uh he asked for the resignation of 46 us attorneys on friday I guess that's a pretty common thing, just not so common or not as quickly as he's done it. Don't they normally kind of turn those attorneys over in time? Well, there are different uh, approaches to it. Uh, I, I will say, speaking of media bias, a lot of it was evident uh, on the firings of these U.S. attorneys. They're all, all of them are political appointees. All of them serve at the subject, uh, uh, subject to the uh, president. And what the president, uh, uh, you know, wants, 
and some presidents have fired all of them at one time, including Bill Clinton, right out of the chute. Uh, others of them have uh, let it happen over time. And the way it looked like, and the original directive, by the way, um, I actually happen to know this, uh, the original directive on the U.S. attorneys was to replace them over time, call for the resignation of some who were particularly political. So about half of them had already been gone. Uh, <laughs> this did seem a little bit abrupt, but, uh, you know, that's still within the purview of, of the president. And whatever triggered uh, uh, triggered this, I don't know what it was, but he just decided to get to get rid of all of them. Now, people act like some, some of the media responding to this were like, oh, this is going to set investigations back. No, these guys are all political operatives. Most of them are very seasoned, very skilled people. Uh, but they also have skilled assistant U.S. attorneys that are doing most of the work anyway. Hmm. And so uh, it's not like, oh, there's going to be a big blip in in law enforcement because a bunch of political appointees go. You saw very strong, seasoned, able, uh, they're called AUSAs, assistant U.S. attorneys, who who are going to keep doing at least all the criminal prosecutions that are going on. So I think quite a lot was made out of nothing. But there is another interesting point here, and that is he's been, so that was quick, but the administration has been very slow at uh, replacing political appointees in right. the agencies and the departments. So some, some, um, uh, you know, I mean, I just remember the Reagan administration. Yeah. You had a, a lot of these folks were filled. These levels were filled down to the, for sure. The second, the deputies, the deputies, you know, uh, deputy secretaries, deputy administrators, and even some of the assistant secretaries, et cetera, were filled up at least nominated at this point. So, I, again, that's another question, though. Is this is this Trump wanting to run things from the White House and through the budget regulatory process, or is the Democrats holding nominees up, which is also the case, um, or is it just uh, not getting the job done? And, and my guess is it's a combination of all three yeah. of those. But there's a certain element in there that's saying, look, I'm going to, manage this thing through the budget and regulatory review process, putting a lot of power in the White House, which is, is that's, that's happened in every, every president, even since Ronald, since Jimmy Carter. Really? Uh, well, actually you could argue since <laughs> you could argue since, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, certainly, uh, Linda Johnson concentrated more power, but even since Reagan, Republican and Democrats have all, or, or I'm sorry, since, since Johnson, Republicans and Democrats alike have concentrated more power of the executive branch in the White House. And it looks like that is something that's also continuing here with President Trump. Yeah. What would you say, what are we missing, Joe? What What do you see that we haven't talked about that needs to be talked about? Well, <laughs> that's a big category. I do think it's interesting that that uh, uh, President Trump nominated John Huntsman to be the ambassador to Russia. That that uh, you know gives. That's a, I think it's a real feather in Utah's cap, and uh, I think you you get a, a pretty seasoned ambassador now. So you got a person who's been ambassador both to China and to Russia, in addition to early on uh, Singapore. 
And I think that was a, a, an interesting move on the part of, of President Trump. Not sure what it says. You know, I'm, I'm guessing Huntsman is like most people in the foreign policy establishment are very skeptical, very leery of Russia. Right. I think, uh, I think to me that signals that Russians themselves, as well as a lot of people in the U.S., have been looking at you know a different approach to Russia. At the end of the day, the law of gravity exists, and Russia's not our friend. Russia's <laughs> our enemy. And I think that's going to become more and more apparent as these, some of these appointments. He hasn't appointed anybody so far, even talking to many people who think Russia is a great, a great idea to be pals with Russia. Right. It seems like, in a weird way, too, that um, he – I mean, who would want the Russian job right now? With all of the other stories and and now having to play the political side between Putin and um, President Trump, is it is it a harder job now because of all of the, you know, election news and Russian alleged interference? Well, yeah, maybe initially it'll be it'll be harder. But I think as things settle in, you're going to find out that, yeah, Russia tried to influence this election as they have tried to influence elections all around the uh, country, that there are not going to be any special dispensations. Apparently, just this last week, uh, the Russians said, well, wait, we met with the Clinton folks, too. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> I think there's a lot that's overblown on this whole Russian thing, but, but we'll find out. Yeah. But from the ambassador's perspective, having an ambassador there who has the confidence of the president, and I think probably has, but would have the confidence of the Russians, given his experience in China, uh, probably that's throwing some oil on troubled waters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Joe, we appreciate you. Great insight as usual. Have a great week, and I, I know we'll talk again Monday uh, to get uh, the latest and greatest update politically. We'll take a break, my friends, uh, doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the more it seems to change, the more it seems to say, stay the same. Have you ever heard that phrase, Jeffrey? It's, it's, it seems like it's changing, but isn't not really. That's the same quote as the guy that said, the love you take is equal to the love you make, something like that. I wouldn't know. Hmm. That's... Now you've thrown me. I've got to think that. Sir. Um, in the end, I guess, 50-plus days, uh, President Trump's been at this. Let's give him some time. He's got to figure some stuff out. A lot of the press has been negative. He's said some crazy things. And uh, very similar to his first week, very similar to his second week, very similar to his third week. He may have had a good fourth week, maybe. It's crazy. Shouldn't he be commended? Shouldn't he get an A in effort, though, going after the biggest possible issues immediately and yeah. trying to do them as quickly as possible? Well, sure. But many would say, if you're going to do them, make sure you do them right. You know, do them right. According to what's right is, you know, so subjective. But let's just give him some time. 
Let's just give them some time. You know, there will be investigations. Everything will, everything will be flushed out. Flushed out. We'll get it out. We'll, it'll all be good. Um, relax. We'll take a break, folks. we got a great uh, next hour. We're going to be talking Spielberg and all of his history, all of his movies. Cool stuff. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. This is the show where we give you the information, the latest and the greatest, what you need to know. In order to live your life, you know, none of us were born with an owner's manual, so we have to learn it as we go. We try to bring you information to get you in the know. How about that? Uh, Today, by the way, Steven Spielberg. We're going to be talking about a new book out on his life, Steven Spielberg, A Life in Films. And uh, the author of the book is going to take us through the history of Spielberg, his greatest, his most popular films, what makes him Possibly the best director of all time. Is this our this is our chips music as we're driving up? The it's Hollywood in, in Hollywood. <laughs> it's Hollywood talk. So you're getting some Hollywood music. It's actually not uh, when I pressed on it wasn't what I thought it was. Oh, it wasn't. But it's still applicable. Uh, Jaws. We're talking. I mean, Jaws. Big Schindler's List. Saving Private Ryan. Catch me if you can. Artiful, artificial intelligence. Boo. By the way, we're going to also be talking later in the show about artificial intelligence with McKenna Baus, Baus in the house. By the way, you never answered which of his films were, were your favorite. Well, you know, was it's, your favorite? it's really funny because I loved Jaws, but when it, Jaws came out, I was young and it was pretty startling. So oh, yeah. It was like over my head in scary fear. If I watched it at night, yeah. I would have nightmares. But if I watched it during the day, I would not. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great way to look at it. Indiana Jones may be my favorite for the one that I loved the most when I watched it as a kid. So which of the four is your favorite? first. Raiders of the Lost Ark? Raiders of the Lost Ark. It just blew me away as a kid. I mean, he almost got squished by a rolling ball. And he almost uh, exploded. But he decided not to look. That's the Ark of the Covenant. Which is so hard to not look. It's like this big cut on my chin from a razor today. Everyone wants to look at it. Terry can't get it, take his eyes off of it. He calls it my third eye. Constantly blinking. <sighs> Steven Spielberg. We'll be talking about it. My shaving practices. We'll get to him. Um... McKenna Bouse is going to talk about artificial intelligence. What not if, the movie, though. Not the movie. Oh, but what, what if what if computers and artificial intelligence could figure out your personality, how you write from all of your writings, from all of your social media, and then eventually, what if after you die for the next 100 years, this AI could be talking for you, sending tweets to your kids? Society would be blessed. <laughs> or would they? Maybe not. We'll find out with McKenna Baus. Get into all that fun. By the way, also today celebrating Napping Day. 
Napping day, by the way, different than nappy day. Nappy Mm. would be a diaper in the UK. Not talking about that. We're talking about napping, which is a good sleep, a good nap, just a rest. How long? Give me a length. Uh, I think all I ever need is 15 minutes, 20 minutes. What's a nap for you? It's just a nap. I mean, you know, any if, if if you get up and your body's like aching and you can't. I had a nap on the weekend that I, I so, think somebody drugged me. I did too. You wake up, you're like, oh, what yeah. Like, I could not wake up, and yeah. for some reason, my pillow was wet. So wait, what is this nap thing that you're talking about? It's that thing. So you know what you do in the third hour of the show when I'm interviewing the guest, and you always put your head down on the console and just. Go to that happy place. Is that what that's called? That's I nap. thought that was part of my job description. Nope. It's napping. Happy napping day. We're celebrating it. Uh, you know, more and more. Naps are healthier than ever. I went to Argentina, lived in Argentina where you have a siesta. Very good for you. Every in the middle of the day, two to three hour break. I had a siesta last night with some salsa and guacamole. It was delicious. Yeah. That's a food siesta. You also would eat during the siesta, and then you'd go sleep it off. Heaven. Heaven on earth. So Spielberg, napping, artificial intelligence, and of course the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we really should be paying attention to? House Speaker Paul Ryan said Sunday on CBS that he can't say how many people will lose health coverage under the Republican bill to repeal the Affordable Care Act, as it is up to the people to acquire coverage if they want it. How many people are going to lose coverage under this new? I can't answer that question. It's up to people. Here's the premise of your question. Are you going to stop mandating people buy health insurance? People are going to do what they want to do with their lives because we believe in individual freedom in this country. So the question is, are we providing a system where people have access to health insurance if they choose to do so? And the answer is yes. Ryan expects the Congressional Budget Office will likely have a report on the cost of the health bill and the number of people it will cover Uh, Today, Ryan agreed with President Donald Trump's characterization that the 2018 midterm elections will be a bloodbath for Republicans if they don't pass this bill. So that's something to look forward to. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of things about our relations with Russia that trouble me a lot, Senator John McCain said in an interview on CNN Sunday. There's a lot of aspects of this whole relationship with Russia and Vladimir Putin that requires further scrutiny. And so far, I don't think the American people have gotten all the answers. In fact, I think there's a lot more shoes to drop from the, this centipede. Oh, boy. Is John Ooh, McCain continuing that's on That's a here, lot of shoes. Making outright allegations against specific individuals. He declined to do such things. So there's no names being dropped here. But he uh, went on talking about the investigation ties between Trump and the Kremlin. Top lawmakers on the House Intelligence Committee want all evidence relating to Trump Tower wiretapping wire turned over today. There you go. So we'll get this done. Get this thing done. Off the table. A winter storm is expected to bring heavy snow and blizzard-like conditions to parts of the East Coast starting today. According to the National Weather Service, the blizzard watch will be in effect Monday through Tuesday evening. Between 12 and 18 inches of snow could cover the region following what has been relatively mild winter for the area. This February had the most above-average temperatures across the globe since meteorologists started keeping record 150 years ago. A nor'easter. That's what they call them. Yeah. They're going to get schmacked. (laughs) <laughs> but it'll be fun to watch on TV. And actually, people get on Snapchat yeah. and record these things, or they get on Facebook Live, and you just watch people walking around the streets. It's kind of interesting. This is exciting. Make sure you Snapchat it. We don't want to miss any That'd of it. Be great. And finally, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. It depends. Apparently, there's a big debate about this. First-year doctors will mm-hmm. be allowed to work 24-hour shifts in hospitals across the United States starting July 1st, when a much-debated cap limit 
that the physician yeah. it used to be 16 consecutive hours for patient care is lifted. So the cap's being lifted. The organization that oversees their training announced on Friday, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education said oh, no, the no, changes no. will enhance patient safety because there will be fewer handoffs from doctor to doctor. It'll, it also, longer shifts will improve <laughs> the new doctor's training by allowing them to follow their patients for more extended periods, especially in critical hours after admission. Yeah, but they'll be useless. 24 hours straight. So let me get this straight. Yeah, go ahead. There, we, we don't let pilots fly more than how many hours? Eight hours, I think, maybe, maybe yeah, a day, yeah. maybe. Uh, we don't let truck drivers. Bus drivers. Bus drivers. Yeah. Uh, Pretty much any kind of like, huh. licensed driver, yeah. there's a limit on how many we hours. We don't even let our school teachers teach longer than so many hours a day. That's for budget reasons. So. But we're okay letting a doctor. First year doctors. So these are residents. Yeah. Um, these are residents. We're okay with them working 24-hour shifts instead of just the 16-hour shifts. Yes. So as not to have as many handoffs. As the uh, article I read, the backbone of most hospitals and medical centers are residents. Yeah, by the way. Right? This they is, do a lot of the, the work and the, the, the this, other doctors right. the work doctors like 60 hours a week. The doctors that cost 300000 are yeah. handing it off to the doctors that cost the hospital 40000 Right. And then they work them now 24 hours. I'm going to bet if we went and asked the residents, because I've had family members that were residents – if this is a good idea, I'm going to bet they'll say no. What do you think about as a patient? Is that concerning to you? That they've gonna... been on the clock for 24 straight? Yeah. You mean in the middle of a physical? No. Just... I want you awake. <laughs> sort of nod off. It's just an embarrassing moment where you're like, sir, are we done? <laughs> what? <Huh? laughs> Can I get dressed again? That's just... like nuts. Yeah. So it used to be 16, but on July 1st, it'll be 24 hours that a resident can be on, on it call, makes, I guess. It makes no working. sense. And surge, I mean, these are surgeons. These are... These are just residents. So well, I don't but, know what, well, but resident, that, so you go, to, you go to surgery residency, okay. and so you're going to be in surgeries. You're assisting. Assisting. You're right, going but, to be still, diagnosing. Then when, you have the hardest thing about all this, you got to chart. You got to chart stuff. So all you, the charting's going to be off. This is crazy. So when the chest cavity is open, you don't need someone falling asleep. Even yeah. if they are just like the number two, number well, three guy in there. That's what grandma used to teach us. Right. They're just doing this so that they can charge you overtime. You that's get double billed. That's exactly it. We're wow. working overtime. So what's going on? That was a, I always thought that was a bad idea anyway. We, there is, in fact, we've had teachers or uh, professors on our show like that are sleep experts. Yes. It's not good. This isn't. There is a point your brain just doesn't work right. And you don't do this enough. If you're not getting enough sleep, your brain can't even organize all your thinking. So it's got to actually limit their learning, mm -hmm. which they're supposed to be doing in residency. They're saying the, the, the accreditation organization says that it actually help influence it because they're going to have longer periods with their like training doctors that they're following sure. around during residency. No. So they'll have more – Interaction with them, and, and it'll be okay yeah. because their supervisory doctors will be able to watch and judge their behavior to see if it is an issue. Okay, let's just get that same board yeah. to work 24-hour shifts no. and stay awake, They're and let's board. see what decisions they make. That's crazy. Can't they, can't they focus more on getting you into your appointment on time? Yeah. That's, that should be a priority. Yeah, but that's done by the people that have only eight hours of work and have had a good night's sleep. 
but and they have to then hand it off to the doctors that are too sleepy to get everyone in on time. And they're making like ten bucks an hour, so it's fine. Oh, that's crazy. What's happening to this world? So if you have any surgery, I'd say get it done before. Make sure you don't have a residence. July 1st or skip the residency. Oh, you know bro. what, though? If you're having a baby, which we will be in a couple of months here. We are? Well, my wife is. The guys always include themselves in that. I thought he would meant like me. Like yeah. I'm this like, is wow. an equal opportunity uh, experience. So, cool. Are we sharing? Are we going to live stream it? <laughs> no. Okay. You are not invited. And, you know... Good. If it were up to us, yeah. we we would choose to have less interference yeah. from doctors and nurses because they always come, you know, inevitably they'll come into the room just as you're dozing off mm-hmm. at one thirty in the mm-hmm. morning. Yeah. Yeah. It's time to just, you know, poke at you for no reason before, you know, we'll interrupt your sleep and then leave. I'm not sure your wife's going to doze off. Oh, no, no. Much. I've been there twice. He's talking about him. Oh, yeah, He's yeah. over in this chair in the corner, and I the doctor's talking to the wife. He's like, I'm sleeping over here, Are people. you kidding? Can you not turn the light on? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad we're through that stage of life. Now I just get to stay up late because my kids don't want to go to bed. Now you can have computer babies. Ah, I better check on them. Uh, for those that didn't hear us in the first hour, I'm running a new city. Did you name your city? I, I will right now. Into I just, the ground. Named, <laughs> wow. That was rude. I've named it Town Town. Town Town, okay. But, Not Townsendville? Or... No, but I think when it gets bigger, we'll have to make it, yeah, Townsendville. <gasps> okay. Why don't you call it Townton or Townton Abbey? Townton Abbey. I'll do that next. I'm, I'm going to have, because I'm pretty sure this will get up into the millions. Yeah, right yeah. now, I've only got 10,000 uh, citizens, but I got a great house. Got to make sure you get that birth rate up. Not to brag, but my, my house is bigger than everyone else's house of in course. downtown. You're the mayor. And they say a lot of really positive things, and I have a lot of happy, green, smiling faces. Can you change your title? I don't think so yet. Like Chief Potentate or something like that? Ooh, but that would be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really proud of it. Chancellor Townsend would be good. <laughs> Chancellor just sounds so Chancellor sounds really good. Yeah. Um, we uh, we we we've got to do what we can on Sim Sim City. Sim City's the the tool I'm using. The tool. Um, the game. I don't like to think of it as a game. Okay, I understand. Simulation is a good yeah. way. Yeah. But uh, this is the theme. My new theme from my my town. That's great. Soon to be Townton. Townton Abbey. Townton Abbey. Because that is like a little fiefdom, right? They they live in a little. Yeah. Well, they're, as they explained in the show, they're actually doing a public service by keeping yeah. the, uh, the the heritage of this uh, system where you have yeah. nobles and you have you employ all these people yeah. to serve you, and they they find joy that's what in, I'm doing. in serving you yeah. and your family who uh-huh. sits around in drawing rooms and discusses the news of the day and has breakfast. Yeah. Just don't for, yeah, don't forget that they're real people too. No, no, no way. I mean, I already know that. That's and I tax them. And when the sewage starts backing up, mm. uh, just a little rule, and I look for people you can kick out of the city. Well, yeah. Because you got to get your numbers down. I grew yeah. my numbers too fast, and then I outgrew my sewage system, which who hasn't had that problem? So I'm guessing you named them Jeeves and Winifred. No, but that's that's a great idea. Did you um, replace those uh, people you kicked out with, like, the with the area they were living? Did you call, like, eminent domain and build a yeah. park? No, no, we didn't. Parks are expensive. Oh, okay. So I only have two of them. What well, I they am, cut down on pollution. 
Well, yeah. But you know what? Right now, I'm going for the smog um, award. Oh, okay. Because a lot of people, smogs, uh, you know, the, the coal mine, the, the gas, or what is it, the coal burning, um, uh, what do they call them? Coal burning, like... Um, power plants. Power plants are, they're, they're less expensive than all of the other safer, cleaner right. methods of energy creation. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, at first, I'm just going to kind of, I'm, I'm, it's almost more like it's not Downton Abbey. It's more like Townton Abbey. Yeah. It's more maybe it's in China okay. where they're just adding more coal plants. Nice. Or it's ni- like that right yeah. now. But China's economy was booming. Yeah. So I was kind of using. Did you at least model. put your your uh, coal fired power plants outside the city? Yeah, I did. Okay, because sometimes it, you make the mistake of getting no. ahead of yourself. You put them in the city, yeah, and then exactly. there are people are trying to live next to right? them. And, uh. No, and and I realized people complain about that. So I moved it to the outskirts. Sadly, I moved it by the beach. It's by the beach, so I'll have to move those later when I get a really strong, you know, when I get a lot of strong tourism coming in to go to the beach. I'll move my power plants. Then. Do you think people will mistake Downton Abbey for the building that was used on the show Downton Abbey? No. And they'll not be disappointed? No, they will love this. Okay. Yeah, I think you can even look my town up if, if you really want to and come buy some stuff from my people. Key phrase. From my peasants. If you really want to. <sighs> Folks, life is good. And up next, we're going to be talking Steven Spielberg. Boy, oh boy, has he had a history uh, in uh, directing movies. We'll be talking with an author who wrote a book about him. That's a big deal. He's done everything. And Jeff's salivating because Jeff's so into the movies. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. From the Jaws theme to Indiana's whip, the creature and the creature known as E.T., Steven Spielberg has been entertaining the masses for decades. In her book, Steven Spielberg, A Life in Films, Molly Haskell looks at Hollywood's most renowned director and unpacks the director's life and works. Uh, Molly Haskell, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, thanks. Thanks. I enjoy being here. This is a uh, this is a, a fun interview for me just because I feel like I've I've been on this um, roller coaster ride with Steven Spielberg as as these movies have been coming out. His name is attached to so many of them. Um, first and foremost, I guess we need to know, Molly, what is your favorite Steven Spielberg movie? Well, I, well first of all, I think that's true. I think so many people have just grown with them, and, and you know, their whole childhood has sort of been formed around those movies. My favorites are not some of those wonderful childhood movies that everybody loves, but some of the later ones. Um, they're a little bit bleaker, which is kind of interesting because you wouldn't have expected it from the earlier ones. But I like Empire of the Sun, mm. which is about a boy caught up in the war in Shanghai. And it's a very, it's like, again, focused on a child. He's wonderful with children and child actors. But this one is quite different from the earlier ones. It's much, it's much bleaker because the, he, he almost becomes feral and amoral during the course of the war. I like Minority Report. I don't usually like science fiction, uh, yeah, but I, I love like Minority, Minority Report yep. a lot. Also rather bleak, based on a Philip K. Dick story. Um, I like Schindler's List. I like Lincoln. You know, I think the, a lot of the later ones are. I, I, it's hard to decide among them. I like AI too. I think that is a science fiction film in which a mother. K 
can't love a robot child who's very lifelike, and it's it's just incredibly poignant, and also very. So often with Spielberg, there's something uncanny about anticipating. He's sort of at, sort of in in the zeitgeist, but also anticipating the future with, uh, with you know, artificial intelligence and so forth. What what got you? into wanting to write a book on Steven Spielberg. I mean, it, well, the, the actual fact is that they it's part of a series. It's Yale University Press's Jewish Live series. So it's very odd. They came to me all day. They came to my agent and discussed it with him and they came to me because I'm not Jewish and most of the writers uh, the subjects of course are all Jewish. Mostly did. I hadn't even thought about how that was going to play out because I suddenly had this live subject who's very much of a control freak. So I had to be very careful. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, lawyers were all over it. But, um, so, and I also hadn't been a fan of Spielberg. But then I thought, well, you know, this is, uh, this is challenging. Let me look at my own prejudices. And also, I can bring a critical. There's nothing wrong with bringing a critical eye. It might be more interesting. He's got plenty of fanboys writing right, about him right. everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. So, well, that's interesting. So, so, so you you really uh, you had to walk the fine line of of his lawyers and the institution of Spielberg. Exactly. Wow. I mean, I, I sort of tried not to think about it. I really didn't think. I hadn't even thought about the lawyer aspect till it was all over. And the other, that's why it was really. It was hard because you know I had written this book on Gone with the Wind, also part of a series, and the critics all loved it. And it's because partly because nobody wanted to write about Gone with the Wind. So <laughs> then here I was doing Spielberg, and they know him backwards and forwards. They know every shot in his films, and they all were going to think, well, that, why didn't I get to do this book? You know? Yeah, yeah. And you could sort of read between the lines of a lot of, I mean, their reviews were good, but there was a kind of, huh, well, I don't want to, you know, they were all doing their Spielberg essays, but that's okay. But of course, I did have to be careful, and I did have, to, I wanted to write something that would not just be for film buffs, that would be kind of entertaining for, a, I mean, I don't expect, you know, wide, widespread. They have to have a certain interest in film, but not just geeks. And so I don't know the degree to which I did that, but that was what I was aiming for. But I also had to be be careful that I was correct on all the film stuff. So. Did you... Um did you get to speak with uh, with Steven Spielberg? Did you get to I sit did, down with him? I did make the effort, and I, frankly, I was quite relieved when he wouldn't. I mean, I was a little hurt at first, but yeah. then I was relieved because I really wanted to be free. I knew that um, it, it turns out that he has, has this policy of not speaking to biographers, and this was true. There's a wonderful sort of full-dress biography by Joseph McBride, which I used and, and, and plundered from my book, but yeah. he wouldn't talk to... Spielberg wouldn't talk to him either, but McBride got to everybody else, to the schoolmates and the teachers and the father and the relatives. Uh, the only one he couldn't talk to was the mother, because apparently Spielberg told his mother she couldn't talk to him. <laughs> he was afraid of what she would say. Yeah. Talk so about... I and I was afraid. If I did meet him, I would be co-opted to his point of view. Mm-hmm. I think I just I just wouldn't be able to help it, and I, I did want the freedom to, you know, to be a little more detached. What did you just, I guess, talk about the person for a bit? What is it that we don't know about Steven Spielberg that might help us understand a little bit? Uh, well, you know, I, I think I sort of figured it out now that I've written the book. It's a, sometimes you, you don't you sort of understand what something is as you're writing on it, even after you've finished it. But it just sort of hit me that he really became a filmmaker before he became a person. And this is why he's so fixated on childhood, because he started... He, he was a lonely, and this gets in, I think, to so, some of the other issues, like his, the Jewishness, which he was completely confused about, because 
he had been born into a kind of Jewish enclave in Cincinnati, but immediately, I mean, almost immediately, his father got a job at GE. His father was in electronics, and it was in the early computer days. And they moved to New Jersey to a, 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 a Gentile neighborhood, and it was mostly Gentiles. And the parents were sort of assimilationist anyway, but the pa- grandparents were Orthodox, and he was just totally confused about it. He felt so much of an outsider in this neighborhood, and he was acting out all the time and doing these malicious pranks on his sisters and just didn't understand what the Jewishness was all about. But when he got to, then they moved to Arizona, which was even more sort of white bread, mm. and he felt even more of an outsider, and he was entering adolescence at that point. And then he, he got, joined the Boy Scouts, and that was really the turning point. And when they had to go for their badges, he thought, what am I going to do? Because he wasn't really, I mean, he, he liked the outdoors, but he wasn't a jock, he wasn't this. And his father said, why don't you go for the photography badge and make a film? And that's what he did. And he made this little film, and the Boy Scouts loved it. And they and then he would tell stories. He was a good storyteller, and they would laugh and cry. And he thought this, it was a sort of sense of arrival. That's where, And he always has sort of arrivals in all of his films, and I think it was from that moment on that he had found his his way of being in the world, which was making films and telling stories, and also felt a sense of belonging that he had never felt in the in the synagogue or you know, even in his family. He was felt like a, a little bit of an outsider because the three sisters and the mother and the father was at work all the time. So I think he just glommed onto that, and he never... He, he was saving money to make films instead of going out on dates, so he really didn't have that sort of normal progression of adolescence into girls. And he was just very, it was sort of an arrested adolescence, as he himself has acknowledged, and he sort of came to it very late. So How fascinating. But, yeah, so that's really what it is. And so that's why um, he's, he has said several times that my whole story is in my films. His story is in the films, because he was making the films, and growing up through the films but not outside of the film he really didn't have a life outside the film so that was the way i was so thrilled that this to me became the the obvious way to tell the story was through the films Hmm. does he do you sense um is there any i mean i guess every film is part of his growing up do you sense any film that is uh was you know so uniquely him um well, and his life. It's a strange thing. Is the least personal film is probably Schindler's List, and yet it's sort of momentous in other terms because it really was right. that and having a child was sort of what brought him back to Judaism and to an understanding of it and a desire to tell that story and to set up the Shoah Foundation for witnesses' testimony, all of that. So that was a watershed. But I think, well, I think E.T. is him because the, the boy who feels alone within the family and needs a pal... Um, I think the, the personal is say I think um, Close Encounters is very personal, and in fact, so much so that he almost disavowed the Richard Dreyfus character who goes off into space and leaves his family behind. He said if he'd had a family at that time, he wouldn't have made that film. But that was him, sort of the artist in him, I think, or the discontent, malcontent, just uh, wanting to escape, the loner, the, wanting to escape. So that's it. And the interesting thing is... <clears throat> His, it's what I think makes his science fiction films so appealing because they're not just formulaic escapist films. He brings the personal longings and insecurities into them. The family, I mean, not not that not the sort of romantic ones, but the ones in the family. And 
I think uh, he sort of gets the Disney audience, but but with a more um, modern and sense of the fra- fractures in the family. Hmm. Does he talk about his his family now? Um, he I, I know I believe he's been married twice. How many kids does right. he have? What's well, what's his I can't family? Like? Myself, I think it's seven. But he married Amy Irving, and they had a child, Max, and got divorced almost after he was born. But they very you know conscientious parents. And then he married Kate Capshaw, who converted to Judaism. And I think, I mean, she she always said that she sort of set her cap for him. She just responded to his films, and then she auditioned for him. And he was still involved with Amy Irving then, but later they did get together. And they had, she had some of her own. Uh, he had Max, and then they had some together, and then they adopted some. So I think it's seven wow. in all. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So family, and uh, and then he converted, uh, or he, I guess he converted, or well, he, he was he was already back. Jewish. Yeah. But, he always, well, his, the interesting thing was his mother, I mean, this is one of the big problems in his life. It wasn't just the anxiety about being Jewish, but the parents were fighting all the time. And as parents did in those days, they stayed together for the children. And it turned out, and he always thought, as you can see in the stories, like in E.T., that the father had a ba- had had played around, and that was what was was breaking the marriage up. Uh. But in fact, it turned out it was the mother who was going out with the best friend of the father, and that's who she. When they finally divorced, she married him, and he was Orthodox Jew, so she went back to becoming Orthodox, and so oh, wow. you know they were back. <laughs> Oh, the com- but I mean, how complicated for a boy. But then I guess that does getting through that in life it is. helps well, you explain it. The normal anxieties of adolescence just compounded by this by the parents and the and also the parents. He was part of that, you know, this baby boom thing that I was sort of part of too, where we were just questioning the parents' hypocrisy and they were pretending that everything was okay. They pretended that they were religious when they really weren't. You know that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so that was going on, too. How fascinating. No, apparently, I guess his mom just passed away. She did, yeah, but she was quite something. She was a concert pianist and very artistic, and actually, she was his co-conspirator. They, she used to write letters so he could get out of play hooky from school, and they would go <laughs> scout for locations. Really? How fun, though. I mean, it, it's just yeah. interesting to know the story behind the man. Let's do this, Molly. Let's take a break, come back, and I'd love you to get into... Um, just kind of, in, in a way, Spielberg owns Hollywood. It seems like he he can pretty much make any movie he wants. Has that pass uh, has that pass helped him or hurt him to be able to have such freedom, such latitude? We'll uh, continue this discussion on Steven Spielberg and the and the book Steven Spielberg: A Life in Films by Molly Molly Haskell. Stick with us. We'll be back. It is. Oh, some of the greatest moments of my childhood, hiding under blankets, waiting for Jaws. We uh, every summer we'll uh, try to watch the show with my kids while on vacation. Just try to scare them before we get to the pool. Then I can really take it on. Joining us is Molly Haskell. She is um, the author of the book, Steven Spielberg, A Life in Films. Molly is a film critic and author of five previous books, including From Reverence to Rape, The Treatment of Women in the Movies, Love and Other Infectious Diseases, and Frankly, My Dear, Gone with the Wind. Uh, she um, She's a great uh, author 
and uh, is helping us understand a little bit today more about Steven Spielberg. Thank you again, Molly, for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. And I think you can be uh, brought up on charges of child abuse if you do that to your children. <laughs> I know, I know. Now they're all old enough, but no one will go in the water anymore. Oh, they're probably in, in heavy-duty analysis that, now. For that's right. Yeah, we've been sending them to therapy for a long time now. This is a, uh, This is a. I, I think, um, when I was just looking through all of his credits, we, 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 he's been involved in so many films as executive producer or producer, but really just his list as a director are unbelievable. Do you think um, he's had kind of a pass, I mean, in Hollywood, because he can, seems like he's going to have the first choice of every movie? Well, he has, and I think he's used it quite well. I mean, there are some that are the retreads. Obviously, he's done Jurassic Park a few too many times, and maybe Indiana Jones. He just can't stop doing it. I think he just can't resist it when, if Harrison Ford still wants to do it, to sort of see the... You know the geezer, the sort of geezer action movies. Yeah. But I think he's also done, you know, movies that haven't fared that well, like Amistad about the Black Slave Revolt, um, even Saving Private Ryan. He didn't think that he had the money, he had the leverage to do these movies and Schindler's List. He didn't think they would do anything. He really, I think he honestly did not believe they had any commercial prospects, and they did. But I mean, he he has felt that he should should use that leverage wisely, and especially with children. I think once you have children, you sort of have that sense of responsibility, and so he's made very sort of even edu- sometimes a little too educational, I think the films are. But um, Lincoln, all of these, I don't think he expected much to happen, and yet they all... He just has a, a magic touch, doesn't he? And yeah, he everything does. just seems to turn to gold. Is even he the, political? Even the so-called losers. And even, I mean, the weakest of all, 1941, that ghastly comedy, huh. war, war comedy, I think, w- went on to do pretty well in Europe because everybody loved it as being anti-American. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you sense he's um, he's political? And is he... Is he is he well received that way? I mean, a lot of these these movies are about statements. Well, they are, and it's interesting. Um, one of the most interesting is Minority Report, because that's that was started before the whole idea and the, uh, thinking about it was before nine eleven. And then as they were making it, nine eleven happened, and in the movie is all this anxiety about surveillance. And of course, right after nine eleven, John Ashcroft formed the Homeland Security Heavy, you know, Patriot Act under Bush and expanded surveillance and he was against that but at the same time he didn't want to appear unpatriotic it's such a crucial hour so I think when the movie came out he said he didn't mean anything unpatriotic about it but it's amazing how how he just sort of understood the mood of the time there yeah. as, as, so, as so many other times. Boy, he does have his finger on the pulse, mm. doesn't he? Um how do you how because a lot of the a lot of the play um, in Hollywood recently has been about there's not enough good roles for women. There's not enough good roles for African-Americans. Uh, he seems to to handle it pretty well. How, how do you well, see I, it? I, the thing he, the, I think his weakness, and he knows that, and he'd be the first person to admit it, is with grown men and women. He just doesn't know how to do because he never developed. You know, he became a filmmaker before he could become a lover. Yeah. So he just hasn't hasn't got a clue about men and women, or even about probably complex women and their desires. But he still has some some good women's and some girls' roles in there. I think actually one of the best is in, in The Color Purple with the, the black mm. women in there, just wonderful. And he he's treated blacks in those two films and, and got beaten up for it. You know, it was, it was a moment of when people, would, a lot of people would say, well, what does he think he's doing 
you know, the idea that you can't make a film about a white person can't write about blacks or make films about blacks and write, you know, that whole thing, which I think we've we've suddenly we've managed to get beyond that in this in this new sort of burst of awareness and diversity that we're going through now. Um, I think he's very uh, conscientious about uh, he's a, he's a liberal and he's he's given money and he was I think he was very important in swaying people in California to I think he was for Hillary first back in 2008 but he got behind Obama so yes that's where his heart and his pocketbook are definitely with the Democrats um, and I, I think this is sort of pretty clear and yeah. Movies, yeah. Do do you? Um, I mean, for a guy that has pretty much seemingly done it all, uh, what's left for him to do? Do, do you have any insight into where he's going to go? Well, they just announced that they were going to do a new um, Pentagon Papers. Oh wow! Movie, yeah. Somebody just sent it to me yesterday, oh, Friday, and Meryl Streep is going to play Kay, Catherine Graham. I'm I'm sort of puzzled why they would want to do that over since the. The yeah, with, new, with uh, Redford and um, Hoffman is so good. Yeah, it went pretty well. Um, but this will be a new angle, I guess. And Tom Hanks is going to be, I think he's going to be Benjamin Bradford, uh, Bradley, rather. And I don't know what else, how they're going to do it. I thought he was going to do one, this Lindsay Adario, uh, this war correspondent. He was supposed to do her story, which would be a great woman's role with Reese Witherspoon. I'm not sure whether that's in the works or not, but... I think he he's very much aware everybody in Hollywood is about wanting to give women more roles, and he's worked with women all his life as producers. And Kathleen Kennedy was his producer, and very close to him, and very important to him. So it's not that he he's he's not misogynist. I just think he's not he's not into uh, the kind of love and ambiguity of that that those of us who like European films, or maybe some of the other, you know Woody Allen or Robert Altman or some of those other directors. Um, he's not into that, but he's got plenty. Um, he's obviously pretty well rounded yeah. in his approach and his talent. Does he does he burn out? Have you did you get any sense in his an history? Amazing thing, he just doesn't seem to. I mean, I think one of the times he came closest to it was after Jaws, because that just it was a terrifying movie to make, and he was so young, and he was un, basically untried. I mean, he he had shown a tremendous talent, but here was this big budget unbelievably complicated film there he was up in Martha's Vineyard and everything was going wrong and he really had a meltdown when that was over and everybody hated him yeah 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 but just that he could get through that I mean it shows you how much um, confidence he has deep down about his filmmaking I think I don't think there's anyone who's more confident is he um I mean that is amazing because and I think it's oh you you're talking about how he keeps going I think it, he's he's talked about this anxiety and how it keeps him going because he's just he's a nervous wreck and he just has to be doing something be doing there's a kind of compulsion to it and you'd think that some that it would sort of catch up with him but somehow it doesn't seem to or if it does he he tunes out and then he tunes back in again but it just here he is 70 years old now and it's incredible yeah it is 70 yeah. years old and um he you know, he he he's who who do you sense are his movie influences? Who who well, are think, you know, movie he or not? Always, he, he'll always deny that he's imitating because Wells is the great god for most kind of independent filmmakers right. and auteur. He's the great auteur, and he's probably the antithesis of Spielberg in his movie making 
um, aesthetic, just the opposite. He's not. He's there, and and it. And Spielberg has always said, "I'm not like Wells. I don't put my personal stamp on everything." But he was thinking about Wells very early on. In fact, he even changed the date of his birth, so he wanted to be the the youngest. He wanted to be to, yeah. to rival Wells as the youngest filmmaker. Well, he almost did that, and he certainly rivaled. Has gone way beyond him because he's managed to to stay in there. Well, Wells just came to you know he couldn't he couldn't work in hollywood anymore at a very young age he was he was sidelined yeah so spielberg has known how to play it his play it the hollywood way but also his own way the the two ways managed to co- coalesce and he's been been very lucky that way too how do you sense he'll be remembered and uh and what movies do you think will stand out as the that's know? a really good question and i, I well of course you mentioned Jaws. Everyone thinks of Jaws just because it's so sensational, and it has become a sort of primal memory. And you know, it's, yeah. I mean, when they when when the summer comes and and they have actual Jaws attacks, instead of showing the kids, and uh, they show Jaws because it's so much more vivid than right. anything that happens in real life, and it's changed the way we look at the ocean. Nothing has had, had a more powerful impact on the psyche. Schindler's List, for another reason, I think it it brought the subject of the Holocaust treated it in a way that has paved the way for other movies to deal with it. And that's just a kind of amazing thing because so many people just felt it was, it was don't go there territory. Mm-hmm. You just couldn't get it right and it would offend people and it wouldn't, you know, this and that. And he just went in there and did it. And I think that was an, an incredibly bold thing to do. Um, I think he's humanized science fiction. I mean, at the time when Jaws came out, many of us didn't like it because we were partisans of this new Hollywood that was the Vaultman and and Cassavetes and these really interesting European-style films that were being made, and suddenly it was blockbusters and blanketing the weekend, you know, um, multiplexes. It was just changing the nature of movies, and it was a very, it seemed like a very mechanical film, just, and, and Spielberg himself said it was just a, a, a mechanism for scaring people. <laughs> and now, though, with so many films that are so much noisier and louder and less human, it seems like a sort of humanistic masterpiece, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, it does, doesn't it? So, yeah, so everything changes with time, and his films that were, that were, that seemed, uh, just, uh, t- too sentimental or too this or too that at the time maybe look better today also he's such a filmmaker he loves film and he's he he does things with film through his cinematographers that um i think a lot of p- film lovers appreciate that you don't see in the kind of a lot of i think he uses cgi warily he uses it when he when he when he wants to he knows how to use it but he wants real film as well mm. so I think that's just a, a big plus. That's powerful. We yeah. got about a minute left, Molly. What, what's the What's the one thing you haven't told us that that we should all know about a Steven Spielberg? Oh dear. Um, gosh, I think I've just covered it all. Except <laughs> that, um, well, I, I think he, that he's just a mensch. I think he he can be very difficult. Let's don't whitewash it. He can be very difficult to people on the set and in contracts and all that. But you don't get to where he is by being a pushover and. I think he's done things with his power that are that are just wholly admirable, and I think he's left just um, uh, just a stunning array of successes behind him. That's powerful. No, we appreciate it, Molly. Thanks for your insight. I mean, even just your mention of him being an Eagle Scout um, and a Boy Scout and then an Eagle Scout, even our own Jeff Simpson was influenced by that as well. I mean, when Jeff got his Eagle Scout, Steven, you send it to Steven's office, and his office would 
talk about it or send him a notice or something. Powerful stuff. Uh, Molly Haskell's her name. Go uh, check out her book, Steven Spielberg, A Life in Film. And uh, mollyhaskell.com is the website. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, McKenna Baus will be in the house talking to us about uh, the day that artificial intelligence can have us communicating from the other side of the grave. Stick with us. Give it up now for the House of Baus. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down things you didn't know now. McKenna Baus in the house. She's our uh, incredible producer, social media expert, and she's here to be our mind bender. Glad to be here. You got a really cool uh, topic today. Apparently, so artificial intelligence, um, the ability for computers to eventually start thinking like us. Mm -hmm. And apparently there's an idea out there that the, the AI is going to eventually learn who we are, learn how we communicate. Oh, this isn't an eventuality. This is this is a reality. It is here. Boy, scary. We are scary. in the day and age of robots that can talk like us. And, and so, so really, you can you could die. Let's say in twenty years you die, but you leave this huge library of you, mm-hmm. your thoughts, your journals, your social media platform, all of these things, and then your. This AI could then, in the future, send text messages, tweets to your kids, to your grandkids, thinking like you. Totally. And it's something that, you know, they've created for people who have died already. Um, What they do, yeah, they load in all of your text messages. Uh, You can do emails. You can do all of your social media posts. And from that, the algorithm, the bot, is able to sort of figure out the way that you speak and your feelings on different issues. And then people can text, you know, this phone number and have a full conversation with you. And it responds the way you do. If you tend to do long paragraph responses, yeah. you're going to get long paragraph responses. If you tend to do short, quick bursts, you're going to get that with those kind of attitudes that you would have. And it really does capture that whole picture of you, good and bad. Well, I'm just thinking because I do a radio show and then I do TV appearances. I have a lot of content on how I think and speak. Mm-hmm. But that not might not be good because I comment on a lot of stuff that most people wouldn't talk about. Yeah, and so that's one of those things that um, comes up in in this article is the fact that you have this idea where it really does capture everything that you say, mm. and so that does make it in a lot of ways very true to life yeah which can be really comforting for the people you know who you've left behind because they can feel like they can connect with you still but at the same time you know if you tend to be a little snippy sometimes or can be really guarded in some yeah. ways that's going to come across as well and so yeah. you don't have full control yeah, over you'd end up what attitude your it gives kids out <laughs> in the future exactly i don't know if i like that because it all i'm not sure that you get to mourn how do you let go of something that is always there? Well, and that's one of the things that, you know, you have to consider is, is there really a right or a wrong way to grieve? Right. Um, I think, you know, definitely there's some people that this might not be the best fit for because maybe they need to just simply move on. Yeah, they need to move on. But for other people, maybe it's, you know, something 
you know, really beneficial in the sense that, you know, occasionally they can, you know, send a text and sort of have a very brief little conversation, Mm -hmm. have that outlet of grief. And maybe they need that, you know, just like little outlet, good to go for a long time. Maybe it's like getting going to your astrologist. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like so in the future, you just say, I just wanted to ask dad what he thought about this. And you just go get a little take. And get that sort of that feel and just being able to hear a response in that <laughs> yeah. person's words. And maybe it's really good in just the sense that it gets you thinking the mm-hmm. way that they would think. And you can then pull on what you ha- know, your actual conversation. What if you them. end up arguing with this AI like, oh, dad, see, this is why I don't bring you this stuff. You know, it's definitely a possibility. And, you know, I think maybe at that point, I feel like, you know, when there are those loved ones of ours who are gone, I'd take an argument with them. Yeah. For never hearing from them. Yeah, interesting. Wouldn't it be – but like something you could do on you know an anniversary or on a special day to remember dad, gather the kids, the grandkids around. I don't know why it's always dad. I mean moms can die too. Right? Yeah. I always think of it as dad. Well, and with that, there's other companies and other services that are similar to that in the sense that before you die, you create this digital will where you write messages, you write personal tweets, emails, things, and you say, I want it sent out on this day. And so that way, you know, it's your anniversary and all of a sudden your spouse gets a message from you that you crafted before you died. And you can sort of have that other form of digital immortality. It's another take that you have a little more control over, but they don't have the same engagement with. Well, and it gives you something... To do, like if you have a terminal illness, you now have something to do. Go lay down these tracks, go do mm-hmm. this writing, start gathering all of your stuff yeah. to, to feed the AI. Oh, jeez. I'm usually scared of AI, but this is yeah. one of those things where I think maybe there's something good about it. But like with Jeff, Jeff's always Jeff always misinterprets things I say on the radio, so his AI might misinterpret a lot. You know, but that that will remind us of the you know things that we love about Jeff. Yeah, or not. I mean, <laughs> might frustrate some people. What about he was a great husband? Huh? Won't we remember that about me? Well, I won't. I'm not married to you. Your wife will. Sure, your wife will. I mean, I hope. So I'm interpreting this as I'm not really all that appreciated. No, you're, you're, I, would re- I would appreciate you and remember you as an incredible board operator, co-host, Talent extraordinaire, friend of Shik Shumway. That's how I'd remember you. Oh, don't cry. Don't cry. He's so emotional. Hang in there. He's jealous because I've been spending a lot of time with my city, my Townton Abbey, and he's getting less attention now. Anyway, we'll come back. McKenna, thanks. Glad to be here. Bending our minds. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy Monday. Also, happy napping day. The day we celebrate a short nap. A little siesta. Maybe a little tiny Sleeping moment. Uh, we, You know, everybody needs it. 
In fact, the siesta is still a time-honored tradition in Spain that happens right after the afternoon meal. It also happens in Argentina, by the way. Um, you know, it's been around, in fact, since, uh, since the days of old. In fact, Charlemagne, even as old as Charlemagne, has been recorded to have taken two to three hour naps in the middle of the afternoon. So Charlemagne did it. Why can't we have any of that here? What, what do you mean? I mean... We. Socially accepted nap times. Oh, it's accepted. It's accepted. Do you think everybody in these offices, they re- do you think they really all sit that still? No. Maybe they're pulling a Ferris Bueller and, you know, they're not even there. They're at home sleeping. <laughs> I did watch uh, Don walk in with a big mannequin that looked just like him. I think he just puts it in his office, turns it around, works on the computer. That's strange because he's never in that office. I know. So he should have just left it empty. Uh, yeah. Maybe he should put you two in it. Then you guys could nap. Napping goes back go to under my the desk. Do you remember napping? Did you go to preschool where you had nap time? Yes, I think. I loved it. It's one of the greatest moments of my life. Right after graham cracker time? I had nap time in seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, yeah, all the way through graduation. Oh, and then you got the tutor. It was called English class, but it was fine. <laughs> you kind of passed That's out in the so back seat. sad. I napped through summer school. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I'm a really good napper. It's napping day, so we will, uh, we'll be talking uh, more about that. It's also, by the way, we're going to tell you a couple of crazy stories. A truck driver... That had a little, uh, you know, a passenger stowaway. Mm. A cat apparently stowed away underneath the semi truck, clinging underneath the semi for 400 miles. Wow. Yeah. It cost seven lives of the cat. And how about an Iditarod dog sled coming into checkpoint without their without their musher? Didgeridoo? What was that? Uh, Iditarod. Speaking of nap time. Yeah. <laughs> what did I say? Did, did, I did a, an Iditarod race team. The horses came in, or the dogs came in. The musher, nowhere to be seen. Okay, you're assuming we're familiar with all of these terms. Musher, I think, you know, musher. like a mashed potato yeah. type of a deal. No, not even, not even close. Uh, we'll get to that, all those fun stories. Plus, Kim Giles will be joining us. How to get your spouse off their phone. And pay attention to you. And she'll join us by phone. So she'll you join us by phone. About the phone. And I wonder if she'll know if we're on our phone. Okay, yeah. promise us that you're not going to play your Sim City game while she's on the phone. Oh, no, I don't do that. She has several uh, steps to cover in this presentation she's going to give. So Absolutely. you have plenty of time for Sim City. <laughs> you might want to mix that in. Uh, for those that weren't aware, I've started a new city. About 10,000 strong, maybe 12,000 strong now. Can you have multiple cities or do you just have you one can. at a time? No, I think you can. I'm just going to do one because I, I just want to prove that you can run a, the politics of a city and not be divisive. Right now, not to brag, I got about 99% happiness. The past versions of this game has had a version where you can run a simulation where the city's functioning and then you have a natural disaster. Yeah, we don't want and that. And then you go fix it. Okay. That's the simulation. Yeah, I'm going to try to have no disasters. Okay. Just, you know, some people like to fix the problem. Yeah. I just found out. A problem solver. You just want to spend all the money. I just want to get a school built, a university built. Hmm. It's like 40 grand. Some so f- would say this show is a natural disaster. Yeah, that's true. Some might call it an 
a natural disaster. Some just call it a disaster. <sighs> Thanks, Mom. Um, we'll take uh, <laughs> we'll take all of this to heart. I appreciate your insight. Help. Thanks for all your help in trying to run my city. But it is my city. And Jeff helped me name it last hour. Taunton Abbey. I have a little fiefdom. I have some people that I help employ that live on my property. If you put $100 into your game, 100 of your real dollars, you get a, quote, huge vault of SIM cash. Yeah. SIM cash, by the way, different than the SIM cash. That they offer in Vegas. If you give thirty-four, about thirty-five dollars, you get a briefcase of SIM cash. Yeah, I'm not doing any of that. Really? I'm not putting any money. Tw- into this. Twenty dollars is quote a nice pile of SIM cash. I, I already told you, I ran into sewage problems because Ten, I didn't have SIM cash. Ten bucks is a little stack, and five bucks is a pocketful. I was out of simoleons. Okay, I'm just saying there's options here. I'm not paying for it, but. If anybody wants to send cash in, I'm not saying I wouldn't dedicate it to the growing of my city. Uh, actually, please do not send cash. Would you cash. say you're growing uh, an addictive attraction Feeling. to this game? Um, not. I, mean, I would. I wouldn't say I'm. I wouldn't say I'm growing one. I'm. Okay. I would. Developing I mean, I'd say one? I've got one. You, you've already. Yeah. Reached addiction. Okay. Yeah. Good. I'm pretty much addicted well, to then it. Then apparently the game is working. Totally. In fact, I got to go get my medal in. So I can build some more nails. Do you want to hear your theme one more time? Yeah, could I? And I want you to pay attention to something. I don't know if you've ever noticed. Yeah. But the Downton Abbey theme is pretty much also the X-Files theme. Okay, let's see. Yeah, this is my theme for Downton Abbey. Yep. I listen to this. This is like, you can almost imagine me, you know... uh, having to evict that one trailer park so that I could build onto the high-rise. Call it... Evicting sounds so harsh. Uh, inviting, invitation to move. Just use eminent domain. People don't yeah, even know what true. that is. It sounds like it's a... I just used eminent... But, yeah, I just used eminent domain to create a clearing in the land yeah. so that, that I could eventually use it someday. It's that highfalutin language of politics that people don't understand. So is there an extraterrestrial uh, element to your... City as well? Not yet, but... Previous versions, you could have an alien attack your city and then you had to fix it. See, I don't want any of that outside interference. What I want is I do want to get my space portal open because there is a space portal. Oh, nice. And so I'm working on that as well. But again, I got to get my sewage taken care of first. So it is now called the Taunton Files. Taunton Files. I like it. I like it. Ooh. Taunton Files. Okay, uh, just keeping you updated on all of that fun. So before we move on um, to these other crazy topics, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What, what's the news we really should be focus, focusing on? Secretary of Health and Human Services Tom Price said Sunday on NBC that he believes nobody will take a financial hit under the Republican bill to repeal the Affordable Care Act and dismissed reports that millions will lose coverage if it passes. Can you say for certain that once this bill is passed, nobody, Nobody will be worse off financially when it comes to paying for health care. I firmly believe that, that, that nobody will be worse off financially in, this, in the process that we're going through, understanding that they'll have choices that they can select the kind of coverage that they want for themselves and for their family, not that government forces them to buy. 
He said that the coverage is going to go up under the American Health Care Act and dismissed again a report from the Brookings Institute that estimates that at least 15 million people will lose coverage under the new bill. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. According to a report in Reuters, 26-year-old California resident Jonathan Tran, who scaled the White House fence and entered the grounds over the weekend, could face up to 10 years in prison. President Trump was at the White House when the incident transpired Friday night. Tran reportedly told Secret Service agents that he was a friend of the president and had an appointment with him. He was carrying two cans of mace, a computer, and one of Trump's books. Tran also had a letter <laughs> that he had written to the president which said it contained relevant information about Russian hackers. I think hmm. we're looking up a possible, you know, maybe that yeah. intelligence, and then that we they need just run at. him off like he's crazy. Yeah, you may. Well, no, he's got were, data. They were, they've arrested him. They have all this information. Now. They have okay. the book. Yeah, the they got. So they got everything they need. A 64-year-old man named Richard Lloyd tried to set fire to a convenience store in Florida because he thought that the owners were Muslim, according to the St. Louis County Sheriff. Lloyd reportedly said that he wanted to run the Arabs out of our country and push the dumpster in front of the store and set it on fire. It's unfortunate that Mr. Lloyd made the assumption that the store owners were Arabic when, in fact, they are of Indian descent, said the sheriff. Lloyd reportedly tried to buy a bottle of Tropicana orange uh, pineapple juice a few days ago and was told that the store didn't have any. Assuming that the owners were Muslim, he reportedly wanted to burn it down because he was doing his part for America. True story. Okay. But I'd share that one. Just and finally, doing his part. Authorities say an Amtrak train struck a runaway horse and buggy in Lancaster. Oh, Lancaster. Darn it. Really? Yeah. But in a county in Pennsylvania. But no one was on board the train. No one aboard the train was injured. The well, empty sure. buggy reportedly got stuck on the tracks Friday night in the area around the, the eastbound Amtrak train heading to Philadelphia struck the horse and buggy shortly before 9 p.m., destroying the buggy and killing the horse. Nobody on board. Ninety people on board the train. Nobody was hurt. Uh, the horse, of course, was the only fatality. Of course, of course, of course. The horse. The people were loaded on a different train and shipped off because. Well, we would not think anybody on the train would have had a problem. It, it, it's the guy in the buggy with the horse. The, the buggy. It was funny. They said there was, you know, uh, debris from the buggy strewn all about. But yeah. There was no mention of the horse. You know what? Though, and not to be insensitive to the horse, but. A horse is a horse. Of course. Of course. That's really good. I've, so, I've heard that somewhere. So in that news, I had a guy that had uh, intelligence for the president, so he yeah, jumped the fence. Yeah. I had a dumpster fire, literal dumpster fire in Florida, and a horse buggy versus train collision. Always go with the horse buggy train. That was some quality news right there. That was quality news. Speaking of quality news, a truck driver, a long-haul semi-trailer driver from Minnesota, thought he had lost his feline traveling companion for good when the cat jumped out of his truck at a rest stop in Ohio. Where'd the cat go? Where'd the cat go? He was pulling a Tom Cruise. (laughs) But it was a joyful reunion for Paul Robertson and his beloved Percy, when he discovered the cat had been clinging to the undercarriage of his 18-wheeler for 400 miles through snow and rain. I'm going to bet you bucks Percy was ticked off. How dare you leave me? All I was doing was taking a bathroom break. Can I not just go to the box, the litter box, without you driving away on me, Paul? Come on! Anyway, Percy jumped out of the semi-trailer window while Robertson was sleeping at the rest stop. After a long search, Robertson says he knew he had to leave Percy behind to meet a delivery deadline. Robertson says that when he finally reached Shoals, Indiana, he spotted what he thought was a stray cat near his truck. And he got closer. Look, he was astonished to discover it was Percy. 
You know, it sounds like they need to have a DTR, a define the relationship. Yeah, they need to talk. Because, you know, clearly this truck driver is going to choose his work over his cat. Totally. It's, it's all about communication. And that's one of the things, you know, not to brag, but I specialize in because I have degrees in it. And I know how to talk a cat down once you've, you know, dragged them on the undercarriage of your car for 400 miles. You know Percy right now is not talking to that truck driver. We have a lot of truck drivers that love this show. And so a little shout out. To all you all, always, always communicate early. Communicate now. Communicate effectively. Because it may not be now you need to communicate. It's the later that it'll matter. That moment you can't find your kitty. It maybe has gone out for a little break, maybe a drink, a soda, in a convenience store. And then the next thing you know, because you've got to make a deadline, you put your deadlines before your kitty and you leave kitty. Focus, people. Cats before deadlines. This message was brought to you by the Matt Townsend Show. I was hoping you were going to do a kitty pun there when you said the later. I was hoping you were going to say the litter. Yeah. My brain doesn't work that way. It's not in the litter box? It's not that way. Yours does. Uh, I, I need to learn to think more like you. I feel bad for Percy. Percy, if you do need help, give us a call, one eight five five chat byu We'd love to help you through this, you and Paul, of course. Paul Robertson, who left poor little Percy on the side of the road in Minnesota. Don't know what you were thinking. Hey, by the way, um, uh, an Iditarod dog team reached their checkpoint without their musher. Sounds like a country song. It is. I'm just not did ride da do do Sorry. Add sleep to the already long list of hazards in the Iditarod trail sled dog race. A video posted on the official race website shows a dog team that arrived at the checkpoint without its musher. Now you've seen it all, huh? A man said in the video. A video scanned the faces of the mellow-mannered dogs. A man could be heard saying, where's Linwood? That would be Linwood Fiddler, Fiedler, a race veteran. He had apparently fallen asleep and toppled off of his sled. According to the information accompanying the video, Fiedler arrived at the checkpoint about an hour behind his dogs, checking in at 4.09 a.m. Thursday's race standing showed that he was back in the trail uh, apparently, I guess he fell asleep, fell off the sled, and uh, he did that apparently at 11.37 a.m. the next, oh, sorry, 11.37 the next day, he got back on the trail. He was able to get his act together in just seven hours, make up, make amends, you know. Well, it is nap day. It's it's nap day. And Mr. Fiedler apparently got his nap and notice dogs don't take kindly to that they didn't get a nap they left the man they just knocked him off see there's something there's a different story between the feline that still got on but you know probably took a beating underneath that truck and the dogs that just made the man take the beating owners, you decide owners are leaving their cats and dogs are leaving their owners there you go a great moral for all of us We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, Kim Giles is going to teach us what we can do to get our spouse, you know, get their attention when they're on their phones. How do you get them off their phone? Stick with us. Interesting insight up next.
Welcome back, my friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we all have uh, this new interference in our relationships, that darn cell phone. So what are we supposed to do to get our spouse's attention and, uh, and actually get them to quit focusing so much on the phone and more on you? To help us walk through this is Kim Giles. Kim is a one of our contributors. She is a one of the to- top 20 advice gurus in the country, uh, as stated by Good Morning America. We've actually now, you know, identified her as one of the top five advice gurus in the intergalactic region. So that is a huge award we've given to her. She is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching, and you can find out more about her work at ClarityPointCoaching.com. Kim Giles, how are you, my friend? Oh, Matt, I'm doing great. That introduction, it just gets better every time you give it. I know, I know. We're, because your, your, your accolades, they just keep going up. Talk to us about uh, cell phones, and it is. It's hard to get your spouse's attention nowadays because – they're instead talking to everyone else or reading about everyone else on their phones. Right? I get this from people all the time that there there's a lot of frustration there and a, and a lot of division in a marriage. And and we hear now even about what they're they're calling social media infidelity, right? Where right. people are are really spending all their time conversing with members of the opposite sex over Facebook or or whatever their social media is. And it's it is having an effect on marriages. Oh, Do you totally. See that? Do you see oh, that? all the time. And it's and the thing is, it, it, we think it's it's kind of just snuck in on us, right? So here we are boiling in the pot, and we didn't even know the heat was going up because we've been distracted. Right. And and it's interesting. I I had an article published this morning on this topic, and and the comments are already coming in, and a lot of people are saying, "Oh, you know, just." Tell them, get off your phone and pay attention to me. <laughs> Just come right out and, and say it. Um, you know, the right way to handle these conversations depends on the type of person your spouse is. There are some people that you can just directly approach this and they'll get it and they won't be offended and they'll put their phone down and pay attention to you. But we've got some of us that have a lot of fear of failure, and it's it's hard for people like that to get feedback and criticism and not get defensive and actually pull back from their spouse even more because they've they you know they feel like they might not think their spouse is good enough. Oh, right, exactly. I, I kind of found disappointment in your spouse is a is a real poison in a lot of relationships that we kind of have to manage. And, and it, it, the thing you, is, we feel justified, don't we? Like, so we end up feeling justified because, you know, I'm just going to ignore you because you've ignored me. And so that's just the way we're going to fix this. But even if it feels like it's justified to to have this anger and this vengeance, it doesn't serve you. Yeah, two wrongs don't make a right, for sure. Yeah. So we what do we do? Back and they pull back more and, and we've got a problem. So I have come up with some better ways to, to to give your spouse some feedback and kind of a system that I think would benefit our listeners because even if your spouse, it, the phone isn't the issue, we all have issues with our spouse that we need to give some feedback around. And if we do it the wrong way, we're going to start fights and, and drive bigger wedges in our relationships where if we can learn to do it the right way, we can really talk to our spouse about anything and, and be safe doing it 
and we can create a space where they're safer to get that feedback and not be offended. That's good. Yeah, safety, the universal need, right? So, uh, what's uh, what's one way to do it? How do we how do we walk that fine line? Okay, so really, I've got just some steps in a process, right? And it starts out with remembering number one that there's no good guys or bad guys here. And what I mean is we have a, a subconscious tendency as human beings, Matt, to, to see the world as, as the white hats and the black hats. And in every situation, there's a good guy and a bad guy. And I sort of blame this on that we watch too much TV and, and, and movies, and there's always good guys and bad guys in every scenario. Right. And so I have a tendency, if I'm watching my spouse be on their phone instead of pay attention to me, I'm already creating this kind of story that they're the bad guy and I'm the good guy here. And so I'm going to bring this up, that they're, they're behaving badly, but it's coming from a place of judgment where I'm talking down, where I'm the good guy and you're the bad one who should be ashamed of your behavior. And the minute we approach our spouse with that energy, that we're in judgment, they know, right. and they're going to feel offended and defensive from the start. Yeah. It's... So we can fix this. We just have to pause for a minute before we start this conversation and remember that though you not, might not do what they're doing in this moment, you have other faults. You're <laughs> not perfect either. You're not. And and because and if you you don't need to defend your faults, let's just let's just explore what's really happening, what's going on. It's not about right or right. It's right or wrong. It's just let's just understand here. Yeah, let's let's have a conversation about your needs and my needs and how we can love each other better. But we've really got to just make sure you're seeing your spouse as the same as you. And you hear me talk a lot about that. Um, I think one of the most healthy self-esteem mindsets you can have is that you see all human beings as the same as you, that we all have the same value. And nowhere is that more important than at home. Because if you always talk down to your spouse, you are not going to have a good marriage. You need to make sure that they feel that you see them as an equal. And there's no good guys and bad guys, and it'll always go better. That's true. kind of my, my step number one. Yeah. Step number two is I want you to remember before you, you address whatever issue is bothering you that life is a classroom. We are all here on the planet to learn and grow and become a better version of ourselves. Would you agree? Totally. Totally. You got to, yeah. yeah, you're here to develop, to become better. Absolutely. So that means every single experience that shows up in your journey is here to teach you something, to help you become better. So if I sit in bed and my spouse is on their phone and I'm like, okay, I'm bothered about this. I want to address it. But I've got to remember that this is my classroom. This isn't just my spouse needs to learn something here, but I need to learn something here too. And and, and the goal is to become a better, more mature, more loving me. And this is an opportunity to practice that. And as soon as I just pause for a minute and remember that this is my classroom, the bar on my behavior and the way I'm going to address it goes way up. 
So true. Because I'm trying to be the better version of myself. Yeah. Right? And you feel better being a better you than lowering your standard to be a worse you, but to get them back or to get even or whatever. Right. And and our ego, our ego naturally doesn't want to see it this way. It wants to see this as it's their lesson. And yeah. this is about them changing their behavior. But it's really, it's a lesson for both of us. And every experience that shows up today in your journey is today's class to help you grow and and these kind of issues with our spouses are, I think, our most powerful classroom. I, I really believe, Matt, that we we marry our greatest teacher. And that person is going to teach you by pushing your button, you crazy, and giving you the chance to grow up and learn to be better. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Totally. Okay. So we have time for step three. Yeah, do one more and we'll take a break. Okay. So you need to step back and really identify what's bothering you using only the facts. And actually, I've heard you talk about this before, too, about taking all the story and the drama out and looking at just the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. Just keep it to the facts. and they're simple. Okay, my spouse is on her phone right now, and I am choosing to feel a little bit alone in that moment. But there's no drama about the past. I'm not going to go to, oh, my spouse never pays attention to me. You always do this. That, that's not the facts. The facts are right now. The facts are in this, in this moment, what is happening, and, and what do I want? We've got to get clear on that before we go to step four. Because the but facts— We'll be, come back after the break. Yeah, because the facts are—they're— they're, they're they're neutral. It's just the data. That's just the data. They don't even have, you know, a massive interpretation attached to it. Just the facts are kind of the beginning neutral spot. It's powerful, power play, powerful place to begin, Kim. No drama. I know. No drama. It doesn't have to have the drama, but our emotion then gets wrapped around the facts, and sometimes we can't separate it. We'll take a break. We'll have more with Kim Giles on how to get your spouse off their phone and paying attention to you. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Kim Giles is on the phone with us. Kim is the president and founder of Clarity Point Life Coaching. She's a popular life coach, author, and speaker. You can go to her website, claritypointcoaching.com. Today, we are talking about how to get your spouse's attention and uh, and get them off their phone. So far, she's taught us it's not a right or wrong thing. you got to remember, your value is not in question in these discussions Two, um, remember that life is a classroom with one goal. We're, we're all here to learn. And three, you've got to um, stick to the facts. We've got a lot to learn. And, Kim, we appreciate you walking us through this. Once we've kind of, kind of gone through those steps, what else can we do to get our attention back, you know, from our spouse and have this conversation? Yeah. Okay. So step four, you've got to get really clear on what you want. What's the outcome that you're after in this moment? And it seems really obvious, but so often we just address an issue and we handle it in a way that's 
maybe even going to create the exact opposite of what we want. So if we if we say this the wrong way to our spouse, we may tick them off and we'll spend in a fight, which isn't what you wanted. You wanted some good quality time with her, right? Right, so exactly. You've got you got to make sure you're clear on the outcome you want. And then I'm going to help you find an option, a behavior option that will actually create what you really want. So step five, we want you to write down every option you can think of. And, and believe it or not, I will literally ask to have a minute on my own or I'll go in another room and I'll take a second and get clear on, okay, I could just ignore this and let it go. That's one option. Yeah. Though, if it's going to keep festering and bothering me, and I'm not bringing it up, but I'm also not really letting it go, I'm kind of <laughs> holding on and letting it fester, that's probably not going to be a good option, because eventually I'm going to explode. Uh, another option would be to just tell myself to get off their dang phone, and I can't believe they're doing this, and they don't pay enough attention to me, and, and criticize them. We could do it that way. You could try that way. <laughs> pretty good, though you're going to trigger her fear of failure and she's going to get defensive and angry about being criticized and she may want less to do with you, not more to do with you. Right. So that's not always a great Let's option. Let's not do that Another one then. option, yeah, is to have a conversation but handle it the right way. And I've got, I've got a bunch of instructions on my website about how to have a mutually conver- a validating conversation the right way. But basically, you've got to make this a conversation that says much about making her happy as it is about making you happy. So I would actually turn to my spouse and say, hey, can we talk for a minute about, you know, our relationship? I really want to know how you're feeling about our marriage and how we're doing. Tell me, tell, would you share that with me? And really give them a, a chance to speak their truth about how they feel. And, and I really like every couple weeks to ask my spouse, is there anything I could do better? Mm. What could I do better to show up for you? And let them give me feedback. Yeah. It's an amazing thing when you, when you show them that you're open enough to grow and learn and, and change to make them more happy, you're going to create a space where they may be more willing to do the same for you. And, and you might find out something amazing that they're mad at you because you've been, you know, hunting with your friends all week. <laughs> so now I'm going to ignore you by being on my phone when you're home. Uh, you can learn a lot when you actually just ask questions and listen, right? Exactly, exactly. When you're always the one talking, you don't learn a whole lot. So, so we want to have a conversation that feels like that, that's more about both of us, not just about you and your needs, and, and make sure this isn't an attack on her when it's time for you to ask for what you need, make sure you ask permission first. You say, honey, would it be okay if I asked you a favor? And, and get their buy-in and then let them know, I really would love more time with you at night. And, and what would you think if we put our phones away, both of us, and really just showed up for each other? you're a lot more likely to get a good response from this kind of conversation. Right, exactly. So if, if you feel like you need to bring it up and talk about it, that's the way to do it. Or I'll give you one other option. Yeah, what's that? Um, and I, 
distract them from their phone. I know for a fact if I'm on my phone and my husband starts rubbing my feet or nibbling on my ear, oh, yeah. I'm going to get the, the message pretty quick that there's a better option here. That's right. Hey, hold Yeah, you would hope, but sometimes they're like, yeah. stop that. I'm trying to focus. Um, that's, well, then you've got to have the validating conversation. Well, the, probably. well, or a bucket of water. Just throw, make, <laughs> throw a little water on them. But I, I guess that's the thing is – I mean, there is research now that more and more people are actually giving up wanting intimacy or sex in their marriage. They want uh, because because of technology, they're just they're they're more distracted, not even chasing some of those more traditional, uh, you know, approaches that used to work. So but you're saying don't give it up. Try to engage a distraction, something. I mean, do something where the phone doesn't work. If it's not working for you, you haven't found your spouse's currency yet. You haven't found what would pull her or him away from their phone. You may want to ask some questions about what they love to do. What would make them happy to do with you at night? Would they like a back rub? You know, do they want to play a game together? What What is my spouse into that? I would be easy to distract him away from their phone because it would be more fun. And hopefully, you know, some intimate time with the two of you is better than looking at your phone. And if it's not, then we need to do some work on it. Yeah. Because we can make it be that and and you'll be happy to put the phone away. That's right. Well, I mean, like my wife would love a walk to go on a walk. She'll put her phone down for a walk. And, you know, a walk may not be my first choice. But part of this, too, is then, you know, seeking the mutual benefit. What does she benefit? How do I benefit? How do we how do we do this together? And maybe on the walk, you have the conversation. So there's a there's a variety of ways to do this. And again, they can go to your website, right? At ClarityPointCoaching.com. Where do they find the information about uh, conversations? You know, right on the front, I've got a, a link about a marriage mastery class that we're going to be offering, and there, the link to have a mutually validating conversation, all right there on that page. And I, I promise, folks, if you learn how to have these conversations the right way, you can handle any issue that comes up in your marriage and with anybody else in your life and, and do it from a place that really honors and respects both of you at the same time. So it's a win-win. Yeah, exactly. Well, well done, Kim. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time and great insight. Uh, Again, Kim Giles is her name. Go to her website, claritypointcoaching.com. Pick up that latest and greatest information on communication. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation will be joining us. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to bring it down a notch as we shoot it down to our good buddies down at uh, in the downstairs studios. For BYU Sports Nation, who better to enlighten us than Spencer and Jerem? Hello, gentlemen. Next on the afternoon Hallmark special. <laughs> this will take a while, too. <laughs> oh, you guys. How are you? Fantastic. How hey. was your weekend? Sports. Excellent. Excellent. Jerem, you sound well-rested. I am well rested, man. Could I you, had an incredible weekend in you, Phoenix. You got to see a lot of baseball. 
Baseball, golf, movies. Wow. Yeah, it was my my brothers in law and my father in law. We've we've said we need to have a brodio. <laughs> so we went to my mom uh, lives down in Phoenix. So we went and hung out there. Yeah, uh, hung out with her. But mainly, it was just it was just fun, man. What you, a brodio. Baseball, golf, movies. Went to a Suns Lakers game too. It was great. Did Sunshine, you, amazing. Amazing. Ninety degrees. Wow. Did you? It was fun. Did you ride a bull in your brodio? No. Good. No. Just the bros. Just the bros. Hanging no, out. That was good. I was telling my sons that we need to start having a trip to Arizona to watch a little uh, game, a little baseball. Oh, it was fantastic. I've never been, and I'm going to go every year now. It was amazing. Is it is it crowded? Uh, depends. If you go to a Cubs game or a Dodgers game, uh, probably, but other than that, probably not. How fun. How many games did you see? I saw four baseball games. Wow. I saw the Suns-Lakers game. I went Played golf twice, and I saw Kong Skull. How epic know. is that trip? That is a great trip. And that was Wednesday night through Saturday night. Wow. And that was after Vegas, which we had a fun time down there. Yeah, you guys. BYU basketball did mm-hmm. not. Yeah. Uh, but we had a great time. Well, um, if you guys wanted to know, I, I started a new city on Sim City. Yeah? What is yeah. it? It's called um, Townton Abbey. Yeah. <laughs> Pardon? That's actually pretty clever, man. That, that was Jeff. Jeff came up with that name. I was That's just gonna, actually pretty clever, Jeff. My original, my original title was Town Town, um, but then they got it to Town Tin Abbey. Town like Abbey. Tin Tin. Mm-hmm. Like Rin Tin Tin. That's that's pretty good, man. Yeah, it's, I'm telling you. So, you know, I'm just that's what I did. I mean, I didn't telling you what I didn't go to all the you know those really incredible you know activities. You do it. I just your son. It's fun. Yeah, I will. I, I've got a city to build, though, so it's going to take a while. We built this city. One of the games <laughs> I went to, uh, Cubs-Mariners, Ooh. there were two former BYU baseball players, and uh, they both got in and got a hit. Really? And I, awesome. talked to the, I talked to them after, knew both of them, uh, one of them pretty well, Adam Law and Jacob Hanneman. So that was pretty cool. That's way cool. The game I went to, both got in and got a hit. Hey, That's, what do you guys... That was awesome. awesome. Now, BYU received the NIT bid. They're the third seed. Yep. And I'm sure you're going to be talking about this on the big show today. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, who are they? Who are they playing? UT Arlington, which happens to be the only other team besides Gonzaga to defeat BYU's arch nemesis St. Mary's what? this season. Okay, it's too perfect. Yeah. And then if BYU wins that, that's Wednesday night, nine Eastern, ESPN two, BYU Radio. If BYU wins that, they could play the Houston Cougars, Ooh. where Dave Rose went to school. How fun is that? Could be in Houston. Could be in the Merritt Center. We'll see. Houston's renovating their facility, so we'll see. Was that that was a cougar though? We heard right. Uh, no, I just have a cold. I was like, yeah, something's caught in your. I'm, the sinuses. I'm almost over a cold. It's been like. Two I years. know you, you sound fantastic. Do I? Yeah, I'm you, glad I have a voice. Yeah, you sound great. Uh, you're, but you're, what else is on the show? I mean, I know Spencer's been working like a dog uh, to just replace you. There's no replacing Jerem Jordan. Yeah. It's true. They they brought in some guy and he threw a 43-mile-an-hour first pitch. Like, <laughs> what? How did what? that go? No threat. Did you guys get video of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll yep. show it. Yeah. Yep. We'll show it. Sure did. Yep, threw out the Jason first pitch Shepard. Friday night. Did, did anyone Friday get hurt? Afternoon. Friday afternoon, yeah. 
But he, he did he get did anyone die? He uh, he's going to have Tommy John after he uh, tore his rotator cuff. <laughs> really good. He'll come back stronger and better next. That's year. great. That's great. Yeah. Super excited for him. Yeah. That tighten that right up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, does, uh, They'll clean it up. So you're going to show the video and then, but it, what you're saying it was a, it was easily a 45 mile an hour fastball. 43. It was 43. Uh-huh. 43. Let's, let's not overdo it. Was it a t ball game? <laughs> Was he? Was my he... first, my first first pitch was way worse than what Jason was did. it. Jason did a nice job. Yeah, my he... second first pitch was better than yeah. Jason's first first yes. pitch. Wow, yes. how many first pitches can one have? Hopefully, a third this season. Ooh. We haven't been asked. You though. could have one every season, really. Probably that's the goal. I think. Wow, I mean, at that point, you're really. And we just... go out. Of, we went out last year at the same time and threw a first pitch. I mean, you're you're really on the team by that point, aren't you? If Jason's you're pitching on that the much. Team. Yeah. Jason is a pseudo he's, member he's of the a BYU part, baseball team. Like I would say, he's on the staff. Really? Like I think they need to put it, list him on the f- staff. Like <laughs> dugout reporter. Yeah. Slash practice it's homie. A great idea. Jason Shepard. <laughs> practice homie. His official title. I'm the practice homie. <laughs> I'm a practice so, groupie. Yeah, I'm the PH. Oh, the pinch hitter? No, the practice no. homie. He, he's applying for a job. Like, what's your job? I'm a practice homie. Pardon? <laughs> He'll be on the baseball <laughs> payroll. What sure. What else is on the show, gentlemen? Do you need anything else? Besides well, no. I mean, that that seems like that's wow. great, and that's got video, so it's all good. Good grief! Yeah. We've given you everything you could Terry possibly <laughs> want and hope for. Terry Nashiff, assistant coach, men's hoops, and Steve Cleveland, former head coach, yes. analyst, will join us to talk about uh, the NIT President and how coach. the BYU Sports Nation karma went next level for BYU baseball. Ooh! Wow! Yep. You just snuck that one in, didn't you? Yep. Yep. And you're going to want to watch the beginning of the show. Okay. Like the first, especially the first five minutes. Okay, then I'm just, I'm just okay. gonna actually, I'm gonna start. I got to start cranking it up right now. Then, yeah, I got to go. Yeah. yeah, have my. We want you to watch or listen to the whole show. Of course. So the first five minutes is especially important today. Yeah, you don't want to miss okay. that. Okay. Okay, guys, that's, that's a, like a great show and happy napping day. Thank you. I know oh. you'll, you'll get one after. It's I understand. happy napping day. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah, make it count. I will. Absolutely. That will happen. I 100% guarantee that it will happen. I know. I always go down to the green room after you've been in there, Spencer, and it's you can tell you've been napping. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I know. There's that lingering, you know, stench. Uh Algae smell. Yeah. (laughs) You brush your teeth. Yeah, it's all there. It's all there. I told you, chlorine is not a great cologne. I keep telling you that. it, It reminds me of the old swim days. Hey, um, have a great show, gentlemen. Knock him dead. Thanks, Matthew. Peace out, yo. That's great. Boy, Spencer lit up when one, you know, once we mentioned napping. Who doesn't, really? Good guys. That's a great activity. If you're looking for something to do, you go to spring training ball in Phoenix and hang out with your kids. Jeff. Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Jeff. Yeah. Mm. Jeff. Mm? Um, we're doing the show. We're doing the I show. thought you said it was napping day, though. No, it is in about four minutes. It is napping day, but in four minutes, you can do that. Uh, I was having this weird dream. I know. That you were talking to Spencer and Jerem about swimming pools and chlorine. Yeah. Not a dream. We were actually just doing the show. You have to try it sometime. It's a great experience. Had by all that are awake. <sighs> Jeffrey. Jeffrey, Jeffrey, Jeffrey. <laughs>
Hey, what was that game you were playing during the show, by the way, a little earlier? earlier? Video uh, game? Uh, Townsend Abbey, not a game. It's Sim, Sim City. It's a recreation of a city, and I'm now the mayor of Townsend Abbey. Thank you. Not doing it during the show, of course. Just answering emails as the mayor of Townsend Abbey. From my people, my peasants that live was, on my property. Was that an elected position or yes. was it more of a you kind of forced yourself into office? Well, I pretty much opened the app. Yeah. So it was forced. I had to choose between, you know, SimCity or Deer Hunter 2017. I guess what I'm getting at is the people in Towntown or Townton Abbey my people, really had, had no choice. Oh, they do. They can leave. They can leave. In a body bag. Some do. I mean, every once in a while, like when the sewage problem hit and the sewage started backing up, many homes started, you know, they started abandoning their places because of sewage issues. So they can leave. It's a free simulated country. Until the wall that you're building to keep them from leaving is up. They're free to leave. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hey, um... To wrap up, we thought we'd share a, a story. A man tried to rob a fish and chip shop with a banana. And I don't know how many times we've told you, don't do this. But he did it. Police are looking for a man who tried to rob the fish and chip shop with a banana. The masked bandit burst through the doors of a takeaway uh, in Atherton, Greater Manchester, on February 11th, screaming for the staff to give him all, my, give him all your money. He tried to fool the staff into thinking he had a gun. But one of the workers noticed that the object inside the bag was quite bendy. It was a bendy gun. Security cameras then showed him fumbling in his pocket, trying to pull out another weapon. But he again failed and made a quick exit without getting any cash. People are now hunting the suspect, who is described as six foot, wearing a black hooded jacket, a blue jumper on top, and a bendy gun. Probably a banana. That's his Western name. Old bendy gun. <laughs> you know, he should have used a cucumber. Totally. That, that, that would look like a gun. Good for salads. Yeah. Good for mm. robbing banks. Smash it, smash it, dice it. Put it in your salad. As you know, we always like to end the show with a hero story, and a six-year-old gave up a birthday party to feed the homeless instead of celebrating his birthday. He is the hero of the day. Armani Cruz, who turned six earlier this month, has been begging her parents for a few months to feed homeless people in her community, but her parents thought she was joking. Her mother, Artisha Cruz, told ABC News, uh, I said, okay, we'll make some sandwiches, to which Armani said, no, I want the same thing we'd have at my party, and they did it. So the Chicago family spent about $300 buying food to deliver a party to the homeless people in the city's East Garfield Park neighborhood. They purchased chicken, fish, spaghetti, corn, green beans, mashed potatoes, you name it. They even had cookies and fruit. They went all out. After Armani mentioned her plan at the family's local church, congregation members donated other items, created care packages for the homeless, including toothbrushes, toothpaste, deodorant, sanitizer. They did it all. So one little girl, Armani Cruz, changed a community on her birthday. Really, wouldn't that be the nicest birthday anyway? So Armani, you're the hero of the day, my friend. Appreciate you uh, being such a great example to all of us. 
And that's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow, giving you more hope, more ideas to live healthier, happier lives. Until then, let's take care of each other. We'll talk again tomorrow.